is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's Monday, October the 15th. Man, it's dark and it's cold, isn't it? It was hard work getting out into the car this morning. It was proper freezing. The heating... Uh, well, the heating's been on for about a month in our house. My wife disagrees strongly when I say, yeah, put a jumper on. Put a jumper on. Or two. No, we have to have the heating on all night, apparently. Yeah, that's going to be a bill when it comes through. I look forward to receiving that. Thanks very much. Lots and lots on the show this morning that uh, we need your input on, including funding for elderly care is cut from local councils. We look at how it might affect you. How well do you get on with your neighbours? I'm very lucky that my neighbours are pretty lovely, although we're hopefully going to be moving soon. And a report suggests that we should be spying on our neighbours before we move in. And can you be honest here? We've all done it. I did it last night. And I, 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 I didn't enjoy it. I feel bad for doing it. What have you stolen? No, I know. I know. I'm going to put my hands up and admit to what I neglected. It wasn't anything huge, but it was enough that I knew that I was doing wrong. And I suddenly got caught up in a chain of events and I couldn't get out of it. You can get in touch in lots of different ways, dear listener. You can email 3cr at bbc.co.uk. You can uh, text 81333, start in your text, 3CR, or you can give us a call, 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. I stole something last night, and I, I, my, I, was, I took my... I'll tell you what it was later on, but let, let me set it up very quickly. I took my mum, uh, my sister and I took my mum to the theatre. We went to see uh, Let It Be, which is basically it's just a Beatles tribute band. And it was cracking. Although I do have a problem with theatre. Well, maybe we'll discuss that another day. I do... I kind of think, what's the point of plays? But anyway, that's, that's for another day. <laughs> They're not as good as films, are they? When have you seen a good car chase or a gun battle in a play? You probably haven't. Anyway, that, that, that's for another day. Uh, but, but I stole something from, from the theatre. With my mum. And I used my mum, who is a pensioner in a wheelchair... I uh, used her um, to hide my stolen goods, and then I gave it to her. So then it was kind of nothing to do with me. If the police come calling, it ain't nothing to do with me, Governor. So what have you stolen? 08459 455 555. Now, you probably think about uh, a lot about how your loved ones will be cared for in the future. Over the next 20 years, the number of over 70-year-olds will increase by 50% to nearly 10 million. Some local authorities have started freezing or even cutting funding for care homes because of tightening budgets. Pat Van Spike looks after her husband, who has Alzheimer's at her home near Royston. She told our reporter Tony Fisher about her experience of cutbacks and the dilemma that she has as to whether to put Peter into a care home. I love Peter. It's a big decision. Peter's just been into a home for a week whilst I went on a week's respite. And when I picked him up, um, he looks sad and lost, and it's taking a long time to get him with that nice, bright smile. It's a big decision. Once Peter goes into a home, that's it. But it's a balance between, Me you know, your, your welfare yep. and his, and at some point... Yes, well, I would feel very disloyal if I was having fun. I've just been to Portugal for um, a week's holiday, and on Thursday, it was our wedding anniversary, 40 years... And honestly, I broke down, so I went on the internet and I came back on Thursday night, which wasn't a very good thing for me to do, but I had to get home. I thought, if I'm going to have a breakdown, I'm going to have it at home. 
So, you know, even when you're on respite, I can't forget Peter. For me, it would be a big decision to put him into a home. But if he was in a home... I could, could go you... off any time. I know. Uh, it's expensive in a home. You've still got big payments to make. You know, I think um, Providence Court, where Peter's been, is about £850 a week. There's a big thing. I mean, I would have to sell the house. In fact, I did try to sell the house three years ago, and we had a village green problem, which took about three years to sort out, and it's too late to move now. So you you have carers coming, but have you noticed a, a decrease in the amount of people coming to you? I mean, have the cutbacks, as it were, impacted on you personally and you you and Peter? We have, and it starts on Tuesday, on October the 8th. We are being cut back from three days at a place called the Dighton, which is, comes under Cambridgeshire uh, Mental Health Authority. And Peter's been cut down to one day. So if that isn't a cut, what is it? What, he, he would go there for three days a week, would he? He would go three separate days, Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, only latterly since about uh, February, March. Um, I had a meeting in April and they were very happy to support me because they know I need this support. Peter's at the stage in his disease where it's heavy work looking after mm. him all day. You really have to watch him every moment. On Tuesday we start with one day a week on a Tuesday. And have Not they ex- explained why they're cutting well, Peter's no, care? there's no explanation. It's just a review of the services at um, the Dighton ward. There this this been... will mean that you're going to have to look after Peter... Two more days a week, yes. full on. Yes, So I'm either going to have to pay a lot more money or hopefully... I don't know, I don't know. And how do, you, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm rather upset. Um, it seems selfish to think I'm upset, but I think Peter benefited from this. And now the rug's been taken, pulled away from under your feet? Absolutely. I think it's appalling. We'll have more on that later on. Uh, if that affects you, you can give us a call 08459 455 555. We'll have a look at the front pages of the papers as well in a little bit. Look, I'm just reading that, that there's some young lad in the X Factor has collapsed through exhaustion. Is that, it's like week three, isn't it? Have you been exhausted singing two songs a week for three? He's done six songs pretty much in total. He's exhausted. Pull yourself together, for God's sakes. 08459 455 555. Tavares, don't take away the music. Now, here's something, uh, page 30 of the mail. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of part of this. I'm sucked into this. Is cough mixture a waste of money? Apparently, apparently, a lot of these um, cough medicines and things we take to ease our aches and pains, and it, it mentions Benilin here and 7C's Joint Air Active tablets. According to this report, which I've done by which... They don't do much. They're not that effective. They do bits and pieces. Whenever I get poorly, and some of you may have heard me banging on about having a cough and a chest infection last week, I instantly go out to the chemist and just stack up on uh, cough medicines and cough sweets and all kinds of pills and, uh, and potions. Popular medicines we spend billions of pounds on a year do not work as well as they claim to, according to experts. Uh, brands such as Benilin, Cavonia, Seven Seas are part of an over-the-counter healthcare industry with sales worth them more than three billion pounds a year. Cavonia, it's made of uh, black treacle. A load of it is black treacle. They say half of it is sugar. And the Seven Seas Joint Air Be Active tablets contain three ingredients and use the marketing claim keep really active with this everyday plan to look after your joints. The witch expert said the amount of the ingredients in the tablets was well below effective levels. Oh, I feel bad now. 
I feel like I've been tricked a little bit into buying all these medicines. My wife always says, well, listen, when you're poorly, just, just ride through it. Just get on with it. You know, just, it, it, you'll get better eventually. And that these cough medicines and pills and potions, all they do is sort of slow things down a little bit. Do you, are, are you reliant on bottles and pills and potions and things like that when you get poorly? I can't bear the thoughts of not having a bottle of Night Nurse or, or Benilin. I love Benilin by the side of my bed when I'm ill. I need you to be honest, Alyssa. Can you let me know? Send me a little text. Tell me what you've stolen. And I'm not in any way condoning it. This is not the BBC saying, hey kids, it's uh, amnesty. Everyone can go and nick something. Not at all. I'm just curious. We've all done it. I did it last night and I felt terrible. You can text 81333, start in your text 3CR. We'll read some of them out after Paul Young. Everyone's banging on about the Great British Bake Off. Have you seen this programme? I watched it for the first time the other night. What a load of old tosh. It's rubbish. And, and I like Mel and Sue, who host it. I think Mel and Sue, uh, Mel in particular, I think is brilliant. I think she's one of the great British TV talents. But this Great British Bake Off... So, um, it's just a load of plums stood in a tent cooking cakes. That's it, yeah? That's an hour's programme. Here's some toffs cooking cakes. I don't understand. I don't... Oh, it's awful. I'm getting faces from the production team. It's awful. It's just these nerds making posh cakes that you have no chance of ever making ever in your life at home because they are just way too complicated. Awful. There's a, a huge glut of cookery programmes at the moment, and they're all quite... Aspirational is the word that they would use in these production meetings. They're all quite snobbish. N- Nigella Lawson. Oh, my. Nigella Lawson. There's that other lady with the teeth, whose name I can't remember. Stephanie or, or Margaret or something. There's the Great British Bake Off. It's all tosh. Oh, wait, 459 555 Now, how well do you get on with your neighbours? I'm very lucky. The neighbours I currently have are fantastic. On one side, we've got a lovely family. And the other side, we've got a professional famous-ish opera singer. So we get like... So if, if, we're, if it's a nice day and we're in the garden, we can hear her singing. We get free opera concerts. It's wonderful. But we're, we're moving. And this next story... Well, I say we're moving. I find out today if my offer's been accepted. Um, and this, this next story has got me slightly concerned. One of Hertfordshire's leading property experts is baffled as to why most people don't spend money researching their neighbours before making the biggest investment in their lives. Henry uh, Pryor from Stevenage says drivers will happily spend almost £100 in getting an HPI check to make sure a car isn't dodgy, yet don't think about forking out a couple of hundred quid for the services of a company which will spy on their neighbours to be. Well, Henry's on the line now. Good morning, Henry. I'm I'm getting worried because I'm I'm, I'm finding out today if an offer I've put on a house will be accepted. And going off on a slight tangent, it is funny, you can spend a few hundred thousand pounds on a house, the biggest thing you're going to buy, yet you only go and see it three or four times. You go, yes, this will do. Spend a fortune on this. But the neighbours, why why should we be worried about the neighbours, Henry? What are you suggesting here? That we go and spy on the neighbours to be? Well, the thing to remember is that when you're buying a house, you're going up against not only the person that's selling their house, who's probably scrubbed the house, cleaned it, cleaned the windows, cleaned the bath, mown the lawn, and got everything neat and tidy, but you're going up against his estate agent who works for him alone. He's not a broker. He's not trying to um, do something reasonable between Mm. the two of you. He's acting purely for the seller. We can see this morning that Luton-based right move have announced that average asking prices in our part of uh, England have gone up by nearly 4% in the last month. 
So the odds are stacked against uh, the buyer, who is then going to go probably on make a decision on two or three visits if you're lucky. Mm. And instead of uh, being fully armed with everything he might need in order to be able to make an informed decision, he's then going to go and borrow probably the majority of what he's going to spend uh, by going to a bank or building society and getting out a big mortgage. And he's then going to go and he's probably only going to find out exactly what he's bought the first night he moves in. What about things like HS2, for example? Are you going to have a high-speed rail link down the back of your garden? What about the neighbours who, who is a farmer who keeps cockerels that wake up at three o'clock in the morning or farms pigs and there's a heavy smell of agriculture drifting across your garden rather than the delightful tones of the opera singer next door? What about the pubs or the clubs that uh, tip out at 2am or the next-door neighbour in the flat above you whose dog runs around on the floorboards with no carpet? All these things can make turn the uh, the, 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 the Liked you thought you bought into something that's going to turn out to be a nightmare. It's funny you mention that. Justin Dealey later on is going to be with, um, I believe, with a gentleman who I think someone in the flat below him smokes a lot of uh, dope, and he apparently gets high from, <laughs> from from the fumes that come through. So we're going to look into that. But have you actually had a client who's paid for spies, Henry? Yes, I don't think we, we would term them necessarily as spies. Um, I think <laughs> How that would you a term little, them? A little over-emotive. But yes, part of my, I mean, my day job is acting on the other side of the fence in, in, in looking after buyers. First of all, finding them somewhere to, to, to live that's right for them, but then checking out what they're going to buy is actually what they want. And we have in the past employed detective agencies who will sit outside and address for apps, I mean, on one particular occasion, for 10 days, watching wow. the comings and going to see if the people who live next door or the traffic that comes uh, down the road during you know is the road that you're living on going to be a rat run for example during the rush hour is it is it, it may seem like a quiet country lane but if it's if it's stacked with cars yeah. roaring backwards and forwards on their way to work then that's a bit of a nightmare but they would pay that's someone to do that, that that's surely well, that's common sense isn't it you should go and look at the street at different times of the day but you know the, the school time and stuff like that to see how busy it is well, not that practical for everybody, wow. Ian. Who's checking the house that you're thinking, you're hoping you're going to have bought? Who's checking it at the rush hour at 6.27 on Monday morning? It oh, ain't going to be you. nuts. Henry, you've got me. I need your man on the case. And what kind <laughs> well, of good things... News. What kind of things have good been news. There's a couple of things... You, there's, a, there's good news about how you deal with this sort of thing, because yes. the internet is now our friend. Yes. You can find an awful lot of information online if you just check, for example, local crime statistics. They're all up there and freely available. Um, as we know, there's, uh, apparently there's an app for everything, so you can download uh, for your smartphone, for something like Plane Finder, for example, in our part of, of uh, in my part of Hertfordshire in particular, I'm plagued by planes coming in to Luton Airport, yeah. uh, and uh, Plane Finder will give you live tracking of aeroplanes coming in, so you can see exactly what's going on, even if you're not actually outside the house you want to buy. And of course, you want to employ, you want to employ a proactive conveyancing lawyer, someone who's going to make sure that uh, plans for roads or road widening or new community schemes aren't going to impact on on that wonderful Desres you've just purchased. Henry, lovely to talk to you. Fascinating stuff and very apt at this time for me. Thank you very much. Henry Pryor there. How do you get on with your neighbours? Any good? I'd love to hear your neighbours from hell stories. It's a cliche, isn't it? Neighbours from hell. But we've all got them. Years ago, when I lived in a flat, the people below me, oh God. Oh, it was awful. We had proper big screaming rows. I remember telling them to go away and no one. They tried to rip us off out of thousands of pounds. Thousands of pounds. And then when I found out, they got upset that I questioned them about it. Your, your neighbours. Good and bad stories. Let's have them. Maybe you've got fantastic neighbours who would do anything for you. Or maybe you've just got the worst neighbours in the world. 
Call 08459 455 555. 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Plenty coming up in the next half an hour, including um, for Thames Valley this time, we're also asking, what have you stolen? You can text me 81333, start your text 3CR. And also, your neighbours, any good? A little bit dodgy? 08459 555555. Now, he's known as Fearless Felix, and that's certainly one word to describe how the Austrian skydiver Felix Baumgartner jumped into the record books this weekend, travelling faster than the speed of sound. If you didn't see it, and I think that, that possibly I'm the only person that wasn't logged into YouTube or whatever it was watching it this weekend, he jumped literally from the edge of space from a helium balloon 24 miles above New Mexico. All right, stand up on the exterior step, keep your head down, release the helmet tie-down strap, start the cameras, and our guardian angel will take care of you. The whole world is working on well, those were the moments before the 43-year-old Austrian jumped from the balloon. He broke the record for the highest ever freefall and has become the first skydiver to go faster than the speed of sound, reaching 833.9 miles per hour. We can speak now to our reporter, uh, Gavin Lee, who watched every second. Did you watch every second of it, Gavin? Yeah, I did. All, almost 10 minutes. Uh, worth, the, yeah. the, the question that, that springs to mind is... Why did he do it? Well, I don't, I don't get it. It was a risky attempt. People yeah. have died doing this before, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the reason with why there was a delay on the uh, televising of the fall as well, because you know, if something went wrong, then at least we wouldn't have to see it. And it was just before, certainly here in this country, just before dinner time, a lot of families having their dinner. And how do you explain that one to your children? Um, you know, so there were. Mummy, what happened to the man? Well, unfortunately, his parachute didn't open, and he, you know, it's fine. Okay, so there was there was a slight delay on it to protect our, our eyes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And he's wanted to do it apparently since two thousand and five because he, he is one of the the kings of the base jumpers, the um, free fallers. Uh, the skydivers he's done all sorts of things he's, he's completed all sorts of um, missions got all sorts of records in the past this was his next level he's wanted to do it for a few years and the man who achieved the highest ever freefall was back in the 60s he was a US Air Force colonel called Joe Kittinger in fact th- Joe's n- now in his 80s and Felix said the only person he wanted involved giving him personal instructions all the way through the jump was Joe Kittinger who was sat there in the main control room in Roswell and you know, I'll just give a few of the risks because we were told of all of these risks before the attempts that if, for example, Felix's specially designed spacesuit failed, his blood could boil. The shock waves triggered by the human body moving faster than the speed of sound could hit with the force of an explosion, and there were nine others with equally grim outcomes. And somebody actually asked him af- after the, the fall, what, how, what was the feeling like when the helium balloon continued to rise? He could see the curvature of the Earth. He was 24 miles above New Mexico, 19 miles above the Earth, and he said he was standing on top of the world. He was so humble, he wasn't thinking about a, a record he was thinking about coming back alive and he didn't want to die in front of his mum watching and all of these people <laughs> that's nice of him yeah absolutely and then he's about to jump off the pod his visor steams up and he was asked about that afterwards and this is what he said at a certain time it looked like this is going to be a mission abort because we had this in our what if list if if you if you cannot see anything you cannot leave that capsule so you have to remain seated and it was not super bad but would slowly start building up frost on my visor so we had to talk back and forth, and we came up with some solutions, and then we all agreed on pressing this through, and we did it. 
you could see him tumbling at, yeah. at one point apparently that that spinning round and round that that must have been a bit concerning yeah you must watch this back Ian. i mean just for the for the sake of of the dread that you can watch all over again by seeing him tumbling like this it, it is frightening and i'm not even a an expert on this sort of thing oh you know? I, I thought you were gavin why, no, why are we I speaking to you if you're not an expert on this kind the of only thing record i've got is f- falling from the top bunk about four years old <laughs> and that's a fr- free fell <laughs> oh bless you stitches in my chin but there's no records for that <laughs> Um, you know what he did was uh, what if any all officiados will know you get you meant to get in what's called delta position where you you have your head towards the ground and you have your hands and your arms behind your back when you're falling he said he was in big trouble there and it took him a, a good 30 seconds but you know, this man has done two and a half thousand um, skydives in the past he got it under control ultimately but he didn't break he broke the record I'll say what he broke first broke the record for the highest freefall distance 36,000 meters um, and then for the maximum velocity 830 33.9 miles an hour, breaking the speed of sound. He didn't beat um, his colleague, this Joe, uh, his his freefall time because the the previous was broken in the 60s at four minutes 30 seconds free falling. He got it four minutes 20 seconds, and I think the spin set him back. But mm. ultimately, he was asked at the end, "How did it feel?" It's it's hard to describe because I didn't feel it. You know, when you're in that pressure suit, you don't feel anything. It's like being in a cast, and it happens somehow down the line, you know, I don't know, we have to look at the data, at what point, and was I still spinning or was I already under control, we have to look at the data, but I didn't feel it at all, because the thing is, if, if you want to charge speed, you need, you've got reference points that passing by, or you have a sound, or your suit is flapping, I have none of these signs, so you don't know how fast you travel. Gavin, you ever parachuted out of a plane or done a bungee jump or anything like that? No, not after my experience of four years old. Well, I'm glad that that's put you off. Thank you very much, Gavin Lee, who is not, by the way, in case you're wondering, he's not an expert on this, but he's, he is, uh, was watching the entire thing. I have mixed feelings about this guy. <clears throat> he's obviously stupid. He has to be stupid to jump 23, 24 miles out of a, a balloon. That, 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 that's obvious, isn't it? But I kind of miss... Listen, if, if you, kids these days, you don't know anything about stuntmen. We, when I was a kid, we had Evil Knievel, who like, every week was jumping over buses on a motorbike and quite often he was failing that was the thing about evil Knievel is I would say more often than not he was jumping a little bit further than he could stretch uh, and failing terribly and I miss that I miss daredevil stuntmen wearing ridiculous suits and motorbike helmets and, and doing dangerous things Eddie Kidd well we all know what happened to Eddie Kidd he, he, he did a terrible jump and got quite poorly I miss these stuff we should have a campaign to bring back the stuntmen Oh eight four five nine four double five, five double five. Neighbours asking about your neighbours. Uh, Ken in Dunstable has uh, emailed in three cr at bbc.co.uk. I'm having problems with my next door neighbours who seem to think that when they no longer have any use for goods in their home, they simply just throw them out of the back gate and leave them there. I've spoken to their count to the council. They do nothing about it. This is what we want. Everyone's got a story about a dodgy neighbour. And it is just by luck if you get good ones, isn't it? I'm also asking, what, did you, what have you stolen? I stole something last night. After seven, I'll tell you what it was. It wasn't big. It wasn't, you know, like a, I jimmied my way into a car and drove off with a Mercedes or something. It was a small thing, but it was still stealing. I still took something that someone else had paid for. Uh, Claire says, when I was six, I stole a Dairy Lee Triangle from Budgeons. I'm 39 and I remember it to this day. See, that's, that, that, that's the guilt of stealing, and I've got a, a, a hankering for Dairy Lee Triangles. Uh, lots of things. Stealing, 
Um, and also, uh, the, the bad neighbours. Now, Justin is out and about. I, I kind of mentioned briefly where you were, Justin. Justin, w- what's happening this morning? Yes, hello, Ian. Um, good track, by the way, that I thought from the Pet Shop Boys. Did not you? Know. Yeah, not keen, so? are you? Yes, I quite like the Pet Shop oh, Boys. I, I quite like, you know, them back in the day, but it was a little bit tedious, I thought, that one. Mm, not, well, their, not their best, not well, their best. We'll have that round later on. Okay. Um, so, I'm in Luton this morning. I'll be meeting a man who says, and this is incredible, yeah. that he gets high from the cannabis smoke which seeps through into his kitchen wow. from the flat above. Have wow. you ever heard anything like this before? No, because the cannabis smoke would go up, surely. He we, must be... Is he, is he going up to the lights so- fitting and, and, and sucking through that? What's happening? Well, we should find out after seven Incredible. o'clock. I mean, he says that, that he's been in touch with the police and the council. They have helped, so that yeah. was last year. The situation it is now getting worse. And this, of course, comes on the same day that the experts at the Independent UK Drug Policy Commission, they say people caught with small quantities of drugs should be spared criminal charges and given fines or treatment orders instead. So it's an interesting day to be doing this. And um, I have to say, I've got a bit of a a cold at the moment. I've got the lurgy, so I can't really taste or smell, which concerns me going into this flat because (laughs) I could be coming back at a very different Justin after nine o'clock this morning. Justin, we will let you know if you start getting a bit rambly and talking about Jimi Hendrix too much, okay? Okay. Justin, speak to you later on. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much. Fascinating. That's going to be a cracker. Keep listening for that. Good morning. This is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, it's the second of our special debates on the Police and Crime Commissioner elections tonight. We've heard from the candidates in Bedfordshire, uh, and it, it kicked off a little bit in that one. Tonight, it's the Thames Valley area. It's one of the biggest forces in the uh, country. So what are the issues the future commissioner will have to deal with? Our political reporter, Paul Scoynes, has been looking at some of the issues. Uh, there'll be some listeners who don't know what these elections are, so just give us the basics as to what exactly this means. OK, Police and Crime Commissioners, they're taking over more or less than the police authorities. They're going to be the new head of the regional force or the, the sort of local force. So uh, they'll be responsible for hiring and firing your chief constable, setting a bit of policy, raising, you know, budget setting and so on. So those are, that's an overview of what the role is going to be. Thames Valley is the one tonight. Um, it's quite a big patch. It is big, isn't it? It's one of the biggest in the country. Yeah, it's got to be. Um, it covers Berkshire, Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire, so it's a fair size. Um, and as a, you know, in, as a result of that, it's got different crime priorities uh, to somewhere like Bedfordshire, where it's got some quite sort of uh, centralised... Um, urban areas mm. um but they're also facing big cuts as well they've had to take 20 percent, as all forces have and that means a cut of 31 million pounds in their budget so wow. far and that's going to be 55 million pounds altogether when they've made those savings lots so of staff going as well absolutely they've lost 400 altogether um and that's in a sort of four-year period and that includes 96 officers but they're saying in spite of that, they've managed to cut crime across the board, so it's gone down by about 11% uh, last year, which is the second best in England and Wales, so a lot to maintain. One of the, the, the things, I, I think that these elections are very important, and I think that, the, that, uh, 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 that not enough has been made of this elsewhere. Do people care about these elections, Paul? Do the general public care about them? Because I think they should if they don't. Well, I mean, uh, yes, I think you're right. A lot of people don't know about them. I'm not sure as that means they don't care about them. I think it's more a, a case of not being told what's going on. Um, the Home Office has done a big or is about to do a big campaign. Mm. Uh, the Home Secretary's been talking about it. We did our own research here at Three Counties mm. and found that there was a very low awareness of these elections. So we've been looking at all of the forces, or we will be looking at all the forces in total. Uh, we've had Bedfordshire already. Uh, we had a little look last week at you know what the, some of the officers think and so on. Um, 
and tonight we've got Thames Valley, and next week, Hertfordshire. You mentioned these cuts, and, and th- there are more to come. Mm. How are they going to keep that up? Well, they're going to try at Thames Valley to maintain the frontline staff. They're losing some transport, which means they're going to have fewer vehicles on the road. Yeah. Um, they're sharing more resources with another force. They're going to be sharing with Hampshire. Sharing resources. Yeah. Okay. So that always like worries me slightly. Call centres, um, sort of those response centres as well. They've yeah. centralised some of those. They've taken out a level of management as well. Um, but that's one of the questions, I suppose, whether or not that can be sustained. Sarah Thornton is the Chief Constable of Thames Valley Police. We asked her what would be the problem in three years when the budget sort of finishes. If um, the situation is as we think it is until 2015, yes, I am confident we can do that. After 2015, we really don't know. Um, so I can't make any promises about that. Um, but unless anything changes in the short term, we won't be cutting more officers in Thames Valley. People are concerned about these cuts, of course they are. Who are the candidates? Who have we got? We've got six candidates wow. in the Thames Valley area. Um, Conservative, we've got someone called Anthony Stansfeld, uh, who was previously in the army, yeah. he's a, a member of the council. Tim Starkey, who's the Labour candidate, he's a qualified barrister, so he probably knows a thing or two about the law. Lim, Lib Dems have uh, Professor John Howson, who uh, used to be a teacher, a lecturer. He's also been a government advisor as well, has been involved in the justice system. UKIP have got a candidate standing. That's one of the few areas where they are standing, and that's Barry Cooper, who's a businessman. Um, and we've got a couple of independents as well. Okay. Patience Teo Owe and uh, Khan Juna, who is currently the chair of the Thames Valley Police Authority authority as well so a couple of interesting independents because interesting independents because you said before it's five thousand pounds five thousand to stand to stand yeah and they might not get that back if they don't get five percent of the vote they lose their deposit so it's a big risk but i, I guess one of the things that it, it, normally in sort of elections you look at independence and go ha 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 you stand no chance but if there is a small turnout that's being predicted for this the independents are in with as good a running as anyone, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, we're looking in some areas at a turnout of 20%. And don't forget that the police at the moment is run more or less independently. Mm. It's got a, uh, an, a, a, an authority, and half of the members on an authority at the moment are independent. That will change, though. They're going to change these police and crime panels, which will have more politicians on that. So we will see a, a greater politicisation of the police. That's okay. So the, the debate is on uh, Roberto's show tonight? From six tonight. You'll be able to listen again to it on iPlay, and we'll play a bit more tomorrow. If it kicks off tomorrow, well, I want those clips yeah yeah no we'll, we'll give you all the ruckus <laughs> very very quickly we're asking what have you stolen uh, uh, listen i don't want to jeopardize your career at the bbc it's very promising but uh, you, have you nicked anything in your time paul scoines <laughs> okay i stole a fudge a, a bar of chocolate yeah i've said it how and how old were you when you I did this younger much younger but were you young enough to know better i was definitely young enough to know better <laughs> yeah. and you, your mum made you take a lemon back once is that yes true? that's right you nicked no. a lemon and she no, got angry. i didn't nick it I, I just not paid for it that's, uh, that's if different. you look up the definition of nicking i think you'll find if you knowingly steal something okay. then it, no this was me just you know I, I yeah i told her i'd not pay for my lemon she marched me back to the shop well, good for you, good for your mum paul swins and thank you for being so honest i will be sending that uh, recording to ofcom and the daily mail it's been nice working with you paul thank, thank you, you. Thanks. sorry i was reading an, uh, an article there about um uh, andrew mccarthy do you remember andrew mccarthy from st elmo's fire and stuff isn't he a handsome older man doesn't he look dishy uh, maybe not, maybe not. Uh, I, I, whatever ha- happened to Andrew McCarthy? Well, he became a travel writer. He stopped making films and became a travel writer. How fascinating. Lots coming up in the next hour. More. I want your stories on bad neighbours and good neighbours. If you've got some cracking neighbours, tell us those stories. Things you've stolen and care for the elderly. 
All of that and more after the latest news and sport with Catherine Boyle. In the flat above you whose dog runs around on the floorboards with no carpet. Carpet. BBC Three Counties Radio. First for news. Carpet. Well done, Catherine. Well done. Filled in the gaps there. Carpet. A dog running around with no car is a ridiculous concept. No carpet is what was being referred to. Good morning, Ian Lee. BBC Three Counties Radio. Lots in the next hour. Plenty we'd like to get your, your voice and opinions on as well. Including funding for elderly care is cut from local councils. We look at how that will affect you. Are you worried about that? Is that something you're thinking about? Maybe it's affecting you now. I'll give you the phone number in a minute. A Luton man gets high from his neighbour smoking cannabis. Reporter Justin Dealey thrust his hand into the air when this was mentioned in the office last week. He said, I'll do that. I'll have a look. We'll find out more in a little bit. And the Milton Keynes concrete cows could be moved. I'm not. I'm not. They could be moved. Is I'm not, not doing what it says on my screen to do. Uh, we can't get rid of those cows, can we? They're legendary, even though they have been defaced ever so slightly. The ways to get in touch are as follows. Email 3cr at bbc.co.uk. You can text 81333, starting your text 3CR. Or you can give me a call 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. There are um, some other bits and pieces I'll throw out later on, including, and I'll, I'll just mention these so that they're bubbling away in the back of your head. Uh, ever stolen anything? We're looking for your confessions. I stole something last night. I will confess to what it is a little bit later on. Uh, and also, the, the, what, fu- the, what funeral song would you like to have? Sinatra tops the list, according to a survey. As well as, as Robbie Williams and Flying Without Wings. Flying Without Wings. Is that Westlife? It was one of those ridiculous boy bands. Imagine being at a funeral and Flying Without Wings comes on. Oh, you just think, oh my God, I, I really like Steve, but it turns out he's got a terrible taste in music. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. What are uh, your, your funeral choices? Now, uh, no link between these two stories, by the way. I should hasten to add, in case you think this is all a little bit insensitive, but you probably think a lot about how your loved ones, <coughs> excuse me, will be cared for in the future. Over the next twenty years, the number of over seventy-year-olds will increase by fifty percent to nearly ten million. But the money for providing care for this growing number of elderly people is shrinking because of hefty cuts to local authority funding. Earlier on, on we heard from uh, Pat Van Spike from Royston. She currently looks after her husband, Peter, who has Alzheimer's. The care for her husband is being cut, but she doesn't know whether she can afford to put him into a care home. It's weird, the the, the care home for, for people with Alzheimer's, because it's not classed as medical care. It's classed as social care. So if it's social care... You've got to pay for it. If it's medical care, you don't got to pay for it. The government pay for it. I know about this because my mum is, uh, is in a care home with MS. It, she's only 62, but it, it's classed as social care. Although we've since found out she may have been misassessed. We're trying to get, we might be able to claim back a load of money. Interesting. But, uh, a slight tangent. We'll talk about that at a later date, perhaps. But at the moment, Pat Van Spike uh, relies on care support workers. One of those is Kirsty Godfrey, who helps her husband, Peter. She's from the charity Crossroads. She spoke to our reporter, Tony Fisher, about Peter's care. We could put TV on and we can sit and with the Olympics, the boat race, and he, he loved it. Um, but then his mind's gone. He's back, he's focusing on something completely different and um, looking around. Um, so it's just trying to keep him as safe as possible, really, and try and encourage him to, you know, to, with his motor skills, 
give him, you know, try and get him to do things, give him his food, try and get him to encourage him to eat it himself, if not help him with that. Um, but you can't leave him unattended at any time. So the work you do as part of Crossroads, the charity, is, mm-hmm. is, is vital, really, especially when you, there are all these cutbacks going on mm. in NHS. Uh, without your support, I mean, Pat must rely on you quite a lot. Yeah, um, she has been very grateful. Um, she thanks me all the time. <laughs> she's she's very very thankful. Um, and Crossroads, they 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 go into every all different people, all different kinds of conditions, illnesses, um, and just relieving the main carer mm. just to take over for them and step into their shoes. I think a lot of families would have fell apart. These services are vital. I've seen I've seen firsthand how important uh, these kind of carers are and th- 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 if we if we start losing these we're in big trouble let me tell you now uh, tonight on inside out at 7 30 uh, on bbc one the team are looking at this very topic of funding for the elderly just how do we look after our aging population well the program's presenter david whiteley is with us now good morning david good morning Ian. uh you've been uh, tackling elderly care issues haven't you yeah that's right i mean uh, as you just heard from from that clip there you know more of us are living longer the issue of care funding is is becoming an urgent one across the country more baby boomers are approaching old age over the next 20 years the number of over 70-year-olds is going to jump by 50% to nearly 10 million. Uh, in the east, in our part of the country, it's much higher, around 60%. Uh, but the funding for providing care for this growing number of elderly is shrinking, uh, and that's because of hefty cuts to local authority funding. Uh, by some estimates, social care budgets have lost £2 billion in the past two years, uh, forcing councils to ration their care uh, funding for only the very neediest people. Now, uh, North Norfolk has one of the country's highest proportions of over 65s, uh, and we go on the rounds with home care staff from one of the private companies that actually provide 80% of home care in the east. Um, that, that's private companies. Uh, and they say they try to keep the standards high. Now, Peter Erica from Norfolk pays for home care from one of these companies. He cares for his wife who has dementia. And he says, we've all got to think about what happens when we get old. It's something we can't ignore. Take your head out of the sand and face up to reality because it hit you between the eyes like a steam train if you don't wake up to it. Uh, you're also looking into ways of people being looked after that don't cost money. This sounds good. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the BBC Home Affairs editor, Mark Easton, has been looking at some of these kind of radical solutions, really, that, that kind of don't cost as much. Uh, the problem of funding elderly care is huge and will certainly put more demand on us taxpayers. Uh, and the one thing being tried uh, puts young people in houses with an older person needing care in return for reduced or no rent. Uh, this is happening at a place uh, in Wickford in Essex. The scheme paired up 80-year-old I- Iona with 45-year-old Graham, who's an NHS worker. You see the advert and it says, OK, this is not going to be a flat share with another NHS worker. This no. is going to be living with a, an older living person. Living carer, um, taking care of the chickens, doing some shopping... Mowing the lawn, um, a few repairs and bits and bobs, a bit of company. David, two things spring to mind there. Firstly, I'm glad it was a 40... I, I was worried it like some 17-year-old hoodie or something <laughs> that was moving in. Uh, and taking care of the chickens. I, yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure that happens with every person right, okay. that you move in with. And I don't think that's... Um, that's uh, not endemic in no. the elderly community. They, no. they, they don't all have chickens. Especially if you live in a flat. Okay. Uh, so, so <laughs> when, when's the programme on? When it's can we on see tonight, 7.30, BBC One. David, thank you very much. Lovely that to talk to you this it. morning. David Whiteley there. Um, all this week on BBC Three Counties, we will be featuring reports on elderly care. Again, looking at the key issues as well as some of the possible solutions. This is what... There can't be anyone listening to this, right? There can't be anyone listening to this who doesn't think we should be putting more money into our elderly care. Well, the, the fact that we're making cuts is incredible when, of course, we should be throwing more money at the situation, shouldn't we? We're all, uh, uh, hopefully, going to grow older and a lot of us are going to need this kind of care. You know, there are people 
that need help getting dressed and washed and fed. Otherwise, A, they'll probably, you know, die in their own dirt. B, they'll never see anybody. I would be so... Listen, if, if there is anybody listening to this who thinks, oh, actually, no, do you know what, Ian? Yes, no, you're wrong on this. Of course we should be cutting... Um, of course we should be cutting the amount we spend on elderly care. Why should I pay for elderly people to be looked after? Could you give me a call? You callous, heartless fiend, you. 08459 455 555. There can be nobody listening to this show so heartless that thinks we shouldn't be spending more money on elderly care. I've seen it happen. I've seen what is required uh, uh, for this. My mum had carers when she lived at home. We kept her in her house as long as we could. And she had carers going around. She couldn't do anything for herself. And again, it was classed as social care, despite the fact she had, uh, has MS and couldn't do anything. She couldn't go to the toilet. She couldn't get up, up out of her chair. She couldn't get dressed. She couldn't feed herself. It was still classed as social care. Uh, and we paid some of it, and the council paid some of it. Not a lot. Can't remember exactly how much. But it was essential. Essential. Now, I know there'll be some of you thinking, well, you should have, you should have done more for your mum. Because I've had this uh, accusation levelled at me. You should have done more. Listen, I did everything I could uh, to, to give her some kind of decent life and make sure she stayed in her home as long as she could. And, and then it turned out, I'm off on tangents today, then it turned out that a couple of the carers were nicking stuff from her. Oh, yeah, one of them went to prison. One of them spent a Christmas in prison. Thank goodness for that. Nick three grand and all her jewellery. Unbelievable. These are carers that were going to go around and, and look. Most of them were wonderful, but there were two absolute dodgepots. Terrible. 08459 455 555. Of course we should be spending more on our elderly care. It's one of the things that it's shocking and shameful that cuts are being made. There are some things it's counterproductive to cut. Okay? And elderly care is one of them. Because by cutting that, we are creating a bigger problem for us a little bit later on. Uh, things you've stolen. Dave the Thatch. I stole a Hooters pen and washing items when I stayed at the Hooters Casino in Las Vegas last year. Now, there will be some of you listening to this who don't know what Hooters is. It's a naughty restaurant. It's not that naughty, but basically, it's staffed by um, women who've got Hooters. Uh, and they wear hot pants and tight T-shirts. I went to the Hooters... Um, I went to the Hooters restaurant in Las Vegas. I did. I'm not, I'm not proud of it. I don't want to go, you know, all kind of d- sexy DJs, which are in the news at the moment, but I did. And um, I was the only person that was served by a bloke. I was. I know, I was served by a bloke in hot pants and a tight T-shirt in Hooters. And everyone else was served by girls, including the female members of our team. And by the way, before you, you know, you point the finger at me and say, oh, you know, it was the female members of the team that wanted to go. I was slightly embarrassed by the whole thing. I was served by a bloke. Uh, And and, uh, funeral music, uh, David Luton says, always look on the bright side of life will be his funeral song. I think that's a choice for a lot of people. I want people in tears at my funeral. I want them blubbing. We've got a few tweets. Thank you, Sophie, uh, on funeral songs. You can tweet either at BBC3CR or me, at Ian Lee. They both kind of end up in the same place. Uh, Lisa Owen says, My funeral song is Spirit in the Sky. I want everyone dancing to it like in the Gareth Gates version. Wowzers. Uh, and Emily uh, Renards says, I'm having a cre- cremation. My chosen track is Firestarter by The Prodigy. Really? There's a story in The Telegraph uh, this morning. Cheer up, Grumpy. It will save your life. Now, I, I uh, uh, you may have guessed, 
I'm quite a grumpy man. I, I am. There's a lot of things I don't like. And, and I revel in my grumpiness. I enjoy being grumpy because the world is so screwed. I don't mind being grumpy at all. It says here, people who are grumpy in middle age are up to three times more likely to die than those with a happy outlook on life. Well, hang on a second. We're all going to die. I think the, 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 it goes on to clarify that happier people will live, on average, nine to ten years longer than grumpy people. But I don't want to live nine to ten years longer. I'm happy to die earlier. Why would you... If everything's so awful and I'm so grumpy and so miserable, I have no intention of living any longer. I'm very, very happy to be grumpy and die a little bit early. Should we have a quick look at the front pages of the newspapers, uh, shall we, before we uh, get the weather? By the way, if you want to give us a call on things you've stolen... No, I'm just trying to sort the papers out. Can you hear me rustling? Uh, if you want to give us a call on things that you have stolen um, and your funeral songs, 08459 455 555. A lot of the front pages have got this amazing picture of this Austrian chap jumping out of... Uh, um, now, when it said, like, a, a, a hot air balloon, I kind of had a, the images of a Phileas Fogg type thing floating up in space. It's not. It's like a proper space capsule. Uh, so that's on a lot of the front pages. In The Guardian, decriminalised drug use, say experts, after six years' study. The Independent, another picture of uh, this Austrian uh, guy. And did brutal cuts cause West Coast rail fiasco? The Times, time to end the war on drug-taking, say experts. Use can be beneficial and should be decriminalised. Uh, the Daily Express, house prices up by £297 a day. And they've got a picture of some of the people from Strictly Come Dancing, a show I don't watch, but a show that we shall be um, discussing later on with one of our Strictly experts. The Mail, a lonely death on the care pathway. MPs demand action after another patient is chosen to die without doctors telling family the son savile's youngest victim a scout age nine and the daily mirror one giant leap for man uh talking about elderly care brian is in high wickham good morning brian oh, good morning i didn't want to hog your time because i uh, nick coffee your colleague gave me <laughs> best part of an hour to, uh, promoting something which i do but i was just uh, saying to your a researcher there that um uh, i really feel it's caring rather than you mentioned 70, which is fair enough. But uh, um, I'm now, <laughs> within two years, I'll be moving to 80. So I don't think it's really age. Um, uh, I think it's, uh, it's caring in general. Well, well it, for some people, it, it, it can be. So you're, very, you're 78, you're obviously very, very active and still doing lots of things, and that's, that's fortunate. But there are some people a lot younger than you, Brian, who aren't in such a fortunate situation, aren't there? That's right. Uh, But caring in general, do you mean we need to be more caring as a society? I think you're right in what you're saying, how care is provided. Because, yes, as we get older, obviously, uh, I think there's as much mental pressure now as physical pressure. And uh, I think there are going to be not just older people, but unfortunately sicker people, although the health service does such, sorry, such a good job. Brian, listen, let me tell you now, when I'm 78... I ain't doing nothing. I'm going to sit in front of the TV, wearing my slippers, I'm going to start <laughs> smoking a pipe, and I'm going to be bossing everybody around. Yeah, I sometimes uh, think I should be doing that. Brian, do it! You're allowed to! You're 78, <laughs> put your feet up on a poof, and just start having a go at everyone. You're allowed to do that, Brian. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing, very quickly, what are you doing today that's so active? Well, this afternoon I'll be going into a school at Jared's uh, Cross to... Uh, teach uh, 32 children because there's nobody else to do it. There you go, you see. Brian is going to go into... What, what are you doing today, dear listener? Brian's going to go into a school and teach 32 children. He's 78 years old. 
Here we go. It's just been announced that Virgin Trains are going to be running the UK uh, West Coast Mainline for the least the next nine months after this whole debacle. No doubt we'll talk about that at some point uh, in the week. Uh, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five is the telephone number if you want to give us a call. Now, a man from Luton says he gets high from the cannabis smoke which seeps through into his kitchen from the flat above. Robert, who lives at Farley Hill Estate, has had problems with his neighbours. He reported it all to the police and council last year, and both have helped, but now things are starting to get worse again. Well, our reporter, Justin Dealey, has gone to see what all the fuss is about. Good morning, Justin. Are you in this gentleman's kitchen now? No, we've just moved around the corner, okay. but uh, it's, it's a one-bedroom flat which Robert lives in, and uh, we mentioned this earlier on, Ian. Uh, we were talking about uh, the flat location. Robert actually lives on the ground floor. Okay. And and we were thinking, well, how can this happen? Because surely smoke rises. Yeah. Uh, let, let's now catch up with Robert right now, who joins us live in our radio car. Robert, welcome to the programme. Appreciate your time. So, so first of all, you live on the ground floor. So how is this happening? Because both Ian and I presume that smoke rises, so this wouldn't affect you. Well, basically, it's because with the cannabis smoke, it's not like cigarette smoke. When it, it doesn't rise, it, it's heavy, so it finds its own level and then it drops. Your life has been hell, you've been high, your friends have been high, even your 70-year-old mother has been high. Yes. Can you tell us more about that? Well, my my mum come back from um, Amsterdam with us. We've been away to Amsterdam, and this is when this started happening. And obviously, you know what it smells like out there with cannabis and that. And then when we came back, she just kept going to sleep, and my friend thought she was being lazy um because she'd done this when we were on holiday and it was basically she just couldn't stay awake and she had to go to bed because she felt so ill i mean how does that make you feel we're not talking about a young girl here we're talking about your 70 year old mother in your flat how did that make you feel well it made me feel bad because i thought you know it could have killed her i mean she's got a lot of illnesses herself she's not young anymore you know and really I, she didn't really need it so this situation happened a few months ago. The police and the council got involved. It suddenly stopped. Uh, now the problem is back again. So your kitchen in the evening, has it become just a, a no-go area for you? It had four months ago. Um, basically, I couldn't go out of my kitchen. Um, the smell was that terrible that I just had to put as many f uh, fans on I could, like the fanettes here in the kitchen. Even though it was cold, the um, the windows had to be open late at night. I had to put a fan on in the living room. And, I mean, that was the only basic way to really get rid of it. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, really, really feel for you. What would you say to them if they're thinking right now, well, you've clearly got a problem here, you're clearly not happy, why don't you sell the flat and move away? What would you say to those people? I would say to them, no, you've got to stick to your guns because, I mean, I've put thousands of pounds into that flat. Um, I've lived there nearly three years and I feel like I've put up with a load of stuff, not only this, with other issues. Um, and I say to the council, you know, this has happened, that's happened. And their basic um, reply to me is, it's not to do with us. It's a noise nuisance, people. If there's noise upstairs and the person's banging, if she's causing um, noise nuisance by swearing or shouting or there's pe people whistling outside, which happens frequently outside... What is the point of going to the council now when they would just turn me like back to the noise nuisance people and say, 
it's not to do with them talk to the noise nuisance people or talk to the police we have got some statements here, Ian, as well. Um, yes. A council statement says, uh, we are keen to take action where a problem is proven. In this particular case, we are aware Robert is liaising directly with the police, and this is out of our hands. Um, Robert, a last question to you. Um, the police, do you think they are doing enough for you? Because you want this problem solved. Clearly, you're not happy whatsoever. It's been going on for months. Just lastly, are the police doing enough for you? The police have been brilliant. I would say well, that with a council... Um, the minority of it they've tried to do what they can but it's not good enough what they're doing I mean I expected more support I say, I've said to them you know I've got this problem this with this cannabis well uh, when it started I spoke to an officer and she said she spoke to the lady upstairs and she basically turned around and said that she had it as well and you know she had to put up with it Quite incredible. Uh, quite incredible, this story, Ian. I think what we need to do is make some more calls to yeah. the council and the police and, and just try and find out what's going on. Because personally, when I heard about this yesterday, I had never heard of anything no. like this before. Living in your own flat, paying your taxes, doing absolutely nothing wrong, and there you are, and your friends, and your mother, all getting high. It's incredible. D- t- two quick questions, Justin. Firstly, hmm. has, it, has um, Robert knocked on the neighbour's door and asked, what's, what's go- asked them to stop? And also, what on earth were they doing in Amsterdam? Uh, well, the, the, the first question, they haven't. They've right. left that in the hands of the police, which I totally understand. Yep. Uh, Robert, what were you doing in Amsterdam, by the way? We went for a short break with my mother just for a couple of days. Um, it was like a small holiday. We hadn't been there before, and we just decided to go away. Everything was fine, and then when we came back, we had to put up with this. Mm. Mm. Like being in Amsterdam all over again, but uh, hopefully uh, we can get those calls in Ian and, and see what we can do for Robert. Justin, fascinating. Thank you very much. I'm, t- I'm tempted to, to, to knock on the neighbour's door and say, excuse me, what's, what's going on? Justin, I'll, I'll leave it up to you if you decide to do that. If, if, you're, if you're a brave... It's easy for me to issue these instructions while I'm sat in my warm, protected studio. Justin Dealey, of course, is our man out and about there. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. What do you think you should do? The BBC in beds, hearts and bugs. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. Plenty coming up in the next half an hour, including why the concrete cows in Milton Keynes could be moved. And the government says it wants Virgin Rail to run the West Coast Main Line. I also want to know what things you have stolen. Um, and also, what would your funeral song be? You can text 81333, starting your text 3CR, or you can give me a call 08459 555. Now, you may have heard on Rob's show last week that the concrete cows in uh, Milton Keynes were vandalised. The three cows and calves in Bancroft were painted as skeletons. The Parks Trust, the charity which maintains them, says it's going to cost £2,000 to repaint the sculptures. Now the Trust says they could be permanently moved. Well, Caris Underwood is from Destination Milton Keynes and joins me on the line now. Good morning, Caris. Good morning. You've been positive about the skeletal cows, haven't you? <laughs> we have, yeah. I mean, I think, obviously, we never condone any vandalism, but having seen these close up... Um, People have, the person who's done this has really thought about this and really taken a lot of care in them, and they do look amazing. Um, and the, the, the positive feedback that the people of Milton Keynes have given on social media sites and, and other ways have really sort of taken them to their hearts and really want them to, to stay like this. And I think the Parks Trust have made the right decision. What, what is the decision they've made? Well, at the moment they said that they're going to keep them like that until after Halloween. They do look very spooky. Um, they're sort of dressed up in their Halloween skeleton costumes. So um, I think they've, they've made the decision. Everyone said, at least keep them until after Halloween and then, and then look at repainting them. But 
I noticed what you said about the, the, two, the cost of the £2,000. You know, I agree, they are a charity, that the Parks Trust, and they do have to be careful with their money, but a lot of people have suggested that, you know, we should get the community to help paint them, and I think a lot of the art groups and a lot of volunteers through social media have come forward to say, you know, we'll help you paint them back. We, you know, we, we want to keep them as they are, and we'll help you paint them back afterwards. But, Karis, aren't you kind of, in, in a way, you are condoning vandalism, aren't you? I think we're not condoning it. I'm not saying that people should go out and do it, but it has, it, it has now been done, and somebody's taken a lot of time and effort. And I think, you know, as we said, if this had been Banksy doing this, these cows would now be worth millions. Um, no, it's so not, is it? It's just some little <laughs> oik. Well, it might be, but I don't think so. If you've seen them up close, um, someone's taken a lot of time. They've, they've actually had to measure. Each one is individual. There's six cows, three calves and uh, three, three large cows. And they, they have done, done, each been done very individually. They've had to make stencils. They've had to do it. This is not somebody who's just come up and just tagged them or graffitied them for the sake of it. They've really thought about it. How could someone do it without getting spotted? It must have taken quite a while to do. They are, they are in a reasonably remote place. You can see them from the road, but they are not really near any he- any housing or anything like that. So I think, from that point of view, it would be quite easy to do it. Although, I have to say, they've done it, if they've done it in the dark, which I think they would have had to have done, they've done a very good job of it in the dark, because it does look, uh, does look quite amazing. How often do these cows get vandalised? Is it quite often? It's not very often. But a lot of people in Milton Keynes actually really take them to their hearts. And, I mean, in the snow, um, people actually go out and put, uh, put bobble hats and scarves on them, uh, because they do care about them. Um, but they ha- it has happened in the past. Uh, the last case of serious vandalism was quite some years ago, but I think one was actually beheaded. Um, which is obviously not very good, um, but the, the original cows are now actually in the, uh, the Midsummer Place shopping centre. Um, these are actual replicas. So, these are, these um, are fake cows. Yeah, they are, I can't oh. think. But they, you know, they are public art, and they're one of the, the, well. the, the sort of over 200 pieces of public art that we have in Milton Keynes, and people do really take them to their hearts. Is th- there's talk of them being moved. Is that, is that a possibility? Is that a pun, Ian? Moved? <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, no, I'm I, better I don't than think that, so. and so are you, Karis. Come on, <laughs> focus. I don't think so. I think um, I think they need to be public art. That was what they were designed for, yeah. and that's what people want to be able to see them. People can get access to them. We've had people saying that over the weekend they've taken their kids down to see them. Um, really, to see yeah. the concrete cows? Absolutely, you've got to you've got to see them to believe them. They do. I've seen. Listen, I, listen. I saw them. I remember seeing them when I was a kid, 20, 30 years ago. However long ago it was, but they're, they're, they're not. I mean, listen, there are some great bits of public art, and having bits of art in public is a wonderful thing, but the cows are a little bit of a joke, aren't they? I Personally, no, I don't think so. I think it's what Milton Keynes is known for. I think people, people like the fact, the people who live here like the fact that they've got something that they can be identified for, and uh, it's the one piece of public art that people know, they're proud of, and they say, yep, let's go and see it. And certainly over the weekend, people have been going down there, taking their kids, and letting them see them dressed up in their Halloween costumes. People actually go and take their kids to see the cows? Yeah, absolutely. How yeah, many? We have visitors coming here, here just to come to Milton Keynes, and ask us. They ring us up and they say, where, where, how can I see the cows? Where can I go to see them? So how many visitors do the cows get a year? Oh, I don't know. You'd have to ask the Parks Trust on that. But okay. it's a piece of public art, so we, you can't kind of clicker them in and say, right, how okay. many people have been? But it's public art. Um, it's on the footpath. People can go and see them. People can go and see it for free. So, you know, a lot of people do. We definitely get phone calls for them. Karis, thank you very much. No problem. Ta-ta, there we go. Karis Underwood from uh, Destination Milton Keynes. Um, it, 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 yeah, the, the, the concrete cows. They've, 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 listen, they are an attraction, and obviously people do like to go and see them, and that's wonderful and, and, and fantastic. But they're a bit of a joke, aren't they? Aren't they? I, I, I remember we used to go to Milton Keynes. My, my nan used to live in Milton Keynes, and various members of my family apparently still do. Uh, but, uh, and the cows were always a little bit of a joke. How do you feel about the cows if you're from Milton Keynes? Can I ask you honestly? Are you, are you passionate about them? Do you think they are a wonderful addition? Uh, or do you think they're a little bit silly? And you're like, oh, God, those blooming cows again, for God's sakes. It's, it's odd to have a, a, a town or a city famous for some concrete cows. I just think there are better things in Milton Keynes. Did, did, you know, there are, Milton Keynes has achieved more 
They're just having some silly cows. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh. Let me know if you think I am. Now, this morning on uh, BBC Three Counties, we have been talking about the cost of getting older. Margaret Morgan Owen cared for her husband, Alistair, for five years after he was diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's. Well, he died in January. Margaret joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning. You cared for Alistair for many years. What was he like as a person? He was very humorous, very intelligent, very charming, and great company. And did he still... Uh, my, my granddad had uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, but every now and then, even at his worst, he would still shine through. Did you find that with, with your husband, that his, his, his character was still there and you could recognise it? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I, but I think I was very lucky. Um, but there were moments, even up, and, up until the very last, when, when he, he came back and he was Alistair again. Mm. And that was wonderful. As his carer, you found it difficult to get a diagnosis for him, didn't you? Yes, yes, we did. It, it, we struggled. Um, for a couple of years, they kept calling it memory problems, which mm. it wasn't. It was much, much more than that. And we knew that, but, it, yeah, it was a real struggle. Why and is there a struggle? If you, if you... I actually asked the question of the consultant about two years down, down the line that they said, yes, it was, it was Alzheimer's. Why were, the they, so, thing why were they so reluctant? They'd been giving us... Um, the, the, the Aricep drug for a couple of years before that. So we knew it was more than memory problems. Why were they so reluctant, do you think, to diagnose, diagnose Alzheimer's? I, I really, really don't know. Um, I know I'm not the only person who struggles, but I think perhaps they think they're being kind by not telling you, you know, mm. what they think is, is, is a horrible prognosis. On the other hand, when we had the, the diagnosis, for us it was a relief because we knew what we were dealing with. Mm. Do you think, Margaret, that there is enough support for carers? Not entirely, no. Um, I think that um, carers are quite often overlooked and perhaps taken a little bit for granted. I think there is a lot of lip service to it, but I think sometimes um, some organisations concentrate an awful lot on the person with, with dementia and they forget the huge stress that I as a carer and many other carers are going through and that we need support as well. What kind of stress did you go through, Margaret, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, that's quite difficult to con- quantify. I mean, you're watching the person you, you love deteriorate and, and, and fade away and that's, that's really quite difficult. Um, I mean, I can tell you sort of stories about things that happened to us that were very upsetting, but it, it, overall, the whole thing is incredibly stressful. I was very often in tears, and I don't cry easily, but I can remember sitting downstairs, with leaving Alistair upstairs, in absolute floods of tears, feeling that there was nobody out there that was that could support me. And in the middle of the night, when you're alone and you're trying to deal with a, you know, he's perhaps... Um, had an accident and wet himself and he won't let you change him or help him to change and in the middle of the night that's quite that's stressful to Mm. be dealing with that situation of course it is uh when he finally went into a care home you experienced some things that shocked you didn't you yes i did um i can remember on i mean i think on the whole care homes are, are very good um, but I think there are problems sometimes at night. And I can remember on one occasion, Alistair was, he was dying. And uh, there was a bit of a crisis. And his daughter asked for me to be woken up. I was sleeping in, a, in, a, in an urgent room. And the carer who came to wake me up, um, woke me up and then said, now, 
if something happens, do you want him resuscitated? Well, to be faced with that question when you've just woken mm. up at about two or three o'clock in the morning, that's huge, you know, and actually to make that decision on somebody's behalf, that's a big responsibility, and I think I should have been, I just think I should have been supported through that. Mm. Um, you know, that... It, it still lingers with me, the shock from that. Um, it, it does seem unfair that uh, y- you were asked that on that spot. My mum my is in a care home, and we have been asked yeah. that question already in advance, we, we've, and we've discussed yeah. it all as a family. If, um, you know, yeah. she goes into a coma, or, you, you know, would you like her resuscitated? And I think it is something that we all need to think about, but to be asked that yeah. in that situation at three o'clock in the morning is, of course, is perhaps inappropriate. I think people would agree. Uh, you'd like to see more done for carers. It's such a big thing, Margaret. Where would you like to see the... Where, where do you think the focus should be? I think, oh gosh, that's a big question. It is, isn't I think, it? Yeah. Um, I, I think the focus should be on, the, I mean, social services will come out and do a carer's assessment, and there are charities like Carers Bucks who will support you. But very often as a carer, I didn't know, particularly at the beginning, I didn't know where to go to get that support. And I think that needs to be made a lot more obvious. I think that should be given to you at the, at the very start of the journey when you have diagnosis. I think that they, they, when they're providing care and they're sending carers in to help you, then those carers should also be tasked with, with thinking about the person who's doing the caring at home, the partner or the, or the, the, the child or... or Mm. whatever i think um i certainly think the national societies like the alzheimer's societies could do a lot more to help um carers they do do carer support groups which are very helpful but i think i think there should be a service that offers the carer the chance to be able to go and talk about what's happening um you do feel very unsupported mm. um and I, and I think if you knew that there was somebody there perhaps a, a, a dementia support worker that was there on your behalf, that you could ring up at any time during, I mean, I guess it would have to be normal working hours, but you could ring up and discuss problems with, I think having that would, would go a long way to helping. Margaret Morgan-Owen, thank you very much. She cared for her husband, Alistair, who, uh, for five years after he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and Alistair uh, died in January. Thank you very much for uh, being so honest and open with us. It all makes sense, doesn't it? it, it it's um, one of those things that, it, it does it seem incredible to me that cuts are being made? Uh, in this area when this problem is only going to get worse kids it's only going to get worse we're all living longer we're all getting older and unfortunately more of us are suffering from things like ms like dementia like alzheimer's we we shouldn't be making cuts in this i know hey listen we're all in this together it would appear we're not it would appear that people like margaret are, are, are not in this together they're the ones doing all the hard work coming up Pop music outplayed hymns by two to one at funerals over the last year, according to research. We want to know what you'd like your funeral song to be. And I don't like all these jolly songs being played, all these upbeat pop songs. I want something really miserable and dirge-like at my funeral. When I die, I want everybody sobbing. Oh, wait, 459 455 555. Under Hertfordshire County Council. Oopsie-daisy. This disease... There we go. Let's uh, let's have some of that, shall we? BBC Three Counties Radio. That's better. 
Now, as we've been talking on this programme this morning over the next 20 years, the number of over 70-year-olds will increase by 50% to nearly 10 million. But the funding for providing care for this growing number of elderly is shrinking due to cuts to local authority funding. Some councils have even started freezing or cutting funding for care homes because of tightening budgets. Pat Van Spike uh, looks after her husband, who has Alzheimer's at her home near Royston in Hertfordshire. She told our reporter Tony Fisher about her local authority. Under Hertfordshire County Council, it's n- this disease is not regarded as a disease, it's regarded as a social illness, which I think is absolutely wrong because um, as one gets further into Alzheimer's, you get more infections, you need to be ringing the ambulance all the time because you can't get this person from the floor. Peter trips constantly and now he's registered as a, uh, a falling uh, person. Mm. Right from the word go, you are assessed. And in our case, it was from Hertford County Council came to assess our financial. And uh, because Peter contributed on his own behalf a good pension, but he did retire so early that it's not as good as it should have been. Um, and we were to pay uh, £225 per week for care. Well, it soon adds up, and at the moment or just until two or three months ago, we were on 448 because Peter got his um, oldest pension. You get assessed along, which is pretty vicious, I think. Colette Wyatt-Lowe is in charge of health and adult care at Hertfordshire County Council. Good morning, Colette. Good morning. Pat mentioned that Alzheimer's comes under social care. That's correct. Does that sound fair? That's the, the way um, we, we have to um, administer. But is the, it fair? It's not, it's not classed as, as, as uh, medical care, it's classed as social care. Is that fair? The care that people will receive will be the same. It just comes from a different um, uh, pot of money, if you like. For example, um, uh, schizophrenia and those kind of illnesses come from the um, Hertfordshire Partnership Foundation Trust funding. Alzheimer's comes under Hertfordshire County Council. But the effect on care, there is no effect on the care that the person But there's receives. an effect on how it's funded. Isn't it? If it's if it's classed as social care, then the, the the family have to contribute more. And if it's classed as medical care, then the, the council pay the majority of it, don't they? Well, whatever, um, however you cut it, we all pay. And I'm really pleased that the government have decided okay. to finally grasp the nettle. Sorry, I'm going to I'm going to push you on this, Colette. Do you think it's fair that something like Alzheimer's and MS? are classed as social care, whereas the family have to pay for it, as opposed to medical care, where the council would pay for it? I think that any, um, any medical condition should, should be treated um, appropriately, and I believe that the, fun- the funding that we do provide is fair. Um, where, the, where the problem lies, in fact, in the burden on families, and that, is, as you said earlier in your headline, this is being addressed by the government's um, so you push think it's towards fair, funding. You think it's fair that... Um, that Alzheimer's and MS are not classed as social care, uh, not classed as medical care, and the family have to pay for them? We all have to pay. No, but the family have to specifically pay in these instances. I know that we all pay our taxes and all of that stuff, but the, the, the families with, who are suffering with MS or, or Alzheimer's, they have to pay the majority because of the clever way it's, it's classed as social care, not medical care, even though they are medical conditions. 
I, I don't agree with, with the premise that, that, that you're, you're taking, but, but equally, as long as people are getting the care that they deserve, if there is a point where the family can't afford to pay, then the state would step well, in no, but the, the, well, I, well, yeah, the, 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 the point where the family can't pay is when their, their savings go below £23,000 and they've sold all their assets. And that's where this, the, the, the thrust of the new legislation comes in, when families are protected and shouldn't have to um, sell off all their assets to fund their care, which is why the Dillnut Report is so important to the future of, me- of uh, care. Okay, so how is, this change go- how is this change going to, to take effect then? Well, if, if the Dillnut Report is, is implemented in full, then there will be a cap on the amount that people will, e- will be expected to pay so that we don't get into the situation where families who have saved hard all their lives, I know you're, you're, the lady who was speaking earlier said that her husband had to retire early, and that has an impact on your savings. And, you know, if we can put in place those measures that help protect people who've worked hard, saved hard, then that must be a good thing. When's that going to happen? As soon as possible, I hope. I certainly... This year, next year? Five um, years? I can't tell you that because that is not within my, within my gift. If, if, if we could do it tomorrow, I would be delighted because it would then help even out the inequalities that there, there possibly are within the system. Okay. Because it is unfair, isn't it? It, it is unfair that someone life, who's saved... Life's unfair. Well, that's, not, ex- that's not a good expect, answer, Colette. That's not, that's not a good answer. To get Alzheimer's, but we support everybody as okay. best we can. But you do... I just, I just want to clarify this. We have this. limited funding. I know. I just want to clarify that, that you think it's acceptable that families where the illness is classed as social care as opposed to medical care that they should take the burden of the funding. They should be responsible for the burden of the funding, including if that means selling off their house. I don't have, um, I don't have the power to change Do you think the... that's fair? That's what I'm asking, yes or no? I, I don't have the power to Is it fair? the view on whether or not... You, 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 you're a human being. Is it fair, yes or no? Life is unfair. That's the, well, so these families are being double punished because I they're not only affected by an illness, they are then being penalised financially. I think that Hertfordshire County Council's policies do everything that they can to help people suffering. Okay. So you think these. it's fair? Okay. Um, well, do you? Yes, it's a yes or no question, Colette. Do you think it's it, fair, yes or no? No. I can't answer that in yes or no terms because every situation is different. Okay. I'll, Everybody's I'll, financial situation is different. Yeah, but do you think it's fair? It, 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 you can answer it in a yes or no. It's a very simple question. And if we get stuck on this point, we might as well move on because this, this is quite an integral point. The families who are... Let's use MS as, as an example then, OK? Uh, if a, someone in MS has... Uh, someone has a, a member of their family with MS, they are classed as social care, not medical care, despite the fact that it is a medical condition. They would have to sell off... Uh, if they were to move into a care home, they would have to sell off their property. They would have to spend all of their life savings until they got to the threshold of £23,000, whereas someone with a medical condition wouldn't have to do that. Is that fair? We do not decide which, whether it's a medical condition or a social is, condition. Well, that but is, is that, that fair? Is a, that is a, but it's not within my gift to decide is it fair? whether it's no, fair I'm not asking your, not. about it's your gift. I'm asking for a yes or no question, it's Colette. Is it fair? It's a clinician's decision. It's not my decision. It's, it's a loophole, isn't I it? I have to work within the system that we have. As but do you think it's fair? As a human being with a soul and with a heart, Colette, you can answer that question. Do you think it's fair, yes or no? I don't accept the, the question that, that you're putting to me in those terms. Why? Because of all the factors that go into... Um, I've given you a very straightforward case that's based on a, that, that is a true case. Do you think that's fair? I 
believe that the, policy, the policies that we have in place are the best that we can have at this time. If I don't believe that people um, are disadvantaged by those policies. They're losing their homes and all, everything they've worked for. That is a system we have at the moment. And, it's and a is that system, system right? That I, it's a system I'm working to change. I completely agree with you okay. that we need to change the system. I just do think it's odd that you can't answer the question yes or no. I think that's, that's kind of, that's, that's a little bit odd. Uh, what is Hearts County Council doing to try and cut the cost of spending for the elderly? Um, we have in place um, lots of measures, preventative measures. In fact, we, as a county, we have, uh, we're, we're a leader in innovation in, you know, f- for that kind of stuff. So, because the preventive, preventive, prevention agenda does help keep costs down and will help us uh, keep costs down for the future um, as we move um, forward with ever-increasing ever demographic pressures. We do have um, higher costs in other counties at the moment and that's what are you doing sorry the question was what are you doing to try and cut the costs okay we have put in place something called our falls project which um we've invested money in in you know for that very simple example we send out a social worker with a specific um ambulance driver uh that's um helps prevent admissions to hospital for every pound we invest in that service it saves three across the health and social care economy so it's those kind of, of things that we're looking that we're looking at um, telecare whereby people um, who, who live at home, particularly with dementia, um, we provide, uh, we can provide and we're working towards a much wider provision of devices which um, give out alerts if people um, fall out of bed, if they're out of bed too long, so that um, they can remain in their homes. The whole thrust of our policies are to help people remain in their homes as long as possible because um, the majority of people want to do that and in particular for dementia patients we find that if they do stay in their own familiar surroundings, they actually stay mentally healthier for longer. Let's the line. We've got Matt in uh, Luton. Matt, good morning, Matt. Good morning. You've, your wife has dementia. What, what's happened? Uh, well, she, she was, we've been, we had her home for, I've looked after her for eight years. Yeah. Um, we've had her home and she fell, broke her hip in the bathroom. Uh, then she went to hospital. She was in there four weeks. Then she went to rehab for another four or five weeks. But it's very strange to me, uh, all that time she was in hospital and in rehab, it don't cost me a penny. Mm. But now she's, we've had to put her in a home in Collingwood House. Jonathan knows all about this. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's now going to start costing us. How much is it going to cost you? I don't know what going to cost you. Okay. But uh, it, it's very hard. The, the hardest part, and I can see her point, she, you, you did put her under a bit of... Um, they're trying to make things better, but I can't see how they're going to make things better. It's very hard. Matt, have you got, have you got enough money to, to, to pay for your wife's costs? No, no, I won't be paying for it. I'll pay for some of it, but not all of it. Colette, what do you think about that? Uh, well, we have um, the financial ruling that says if you have um, assets um, over £23,500, then you have to contribute something towards the cost of care. And... Um, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about, um, I didn't quite Matt. expert Matt, um, you know, and I hope that the care that his wife is, is receiving is of the quality that he would wish. 
But if um, if he he weren't able to afford to contribute anything, then then the costs would be fully covered. Okay, well, listen, we have to leave it there, Matt. Thank you very much for giving us a call, and all the best to your wife, Colette Wyatt Lowe, char- in charge of health and adult care at Hertfordshire County Council. <laughs> Suddenly, it's just got eight o'clock. How did that happen? It was four o'clock a minute ago, and I was just waking up. Good morning, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's three minutes past eight, Monday the 15th of August. Plenty coming up in this last hour of the show before Jonathan Vernon-Smith comes on at nine o'clock, including... As you heard here, Virgin Trains gets an extension to run the West Coast Main Line. And a Hertfordshire property expert says, do your research on your neighbours before you move in. What are your neighbours like? Any good? My neighbours are fantastic at the moment. We're about to move. I'm a little bit nervous. Have you got awful neighbours? I've had them. And we shared a... I lived in the top floor of a house. They lived in the bottom. And we would see each other in the communal door. It was awful. Awful. 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, Virgin Trains will be asked to continue to run services on the West Coast mainline for at least another nine months after the latest decision on the route franchise was scrapped. This story just just keeps on going. It's wonderful. The Department for Transport says it will enter into negotiations with Virgin for the temporary contract, and then a competition will be run for a new franchise agreement. The route goes through Milton Keynes and Watford. Sim Harris is the Bedfordshire-based managing editor of Rail News, the national newspaper for the rail industry. Good morning, Sim. Good morning. And Sim, I feel honoured that you're on BBC Three Counties. Why? I heard you on Radio 4 the other day. Well, yes, I'm... I'm, I'm Proper Radio. I I am honoured to be on Three Counties, (laughs) may I say. Please do not put yourself down like that. You've spoken to Eddie Mayer, now you're speaking to me. I consider it honour. You'll have them splashing their coffee in Milton Keynes (laughs) and Hitchin and Luton. You really will. Um, No, let's be clear about this. Virgin is not yet the done deal. Uh, it's it's getting a bit over-egged this morning, in okay. my view. So it's, it's not definitely getting getting the extra nine-month contract? To enter into negotiations is not quite the same thing as right. doing a deal. At the moment, if you like, if you go into a shop and look at something on the shelf and ask, how much is that? You haven't bought it yet, have you? Right, very clever. And it, where, that's where we are. That's exactly where we are. Now, I think it highly likely, mind you, I think it probably will be a done deal, but it isn't yet. So let's just, let's just hold on and look at where we are. It's got to be the most obvious option, isn't it? Because they're there at the moment, and it would it would surely be cheaper. I would imagine. I don't know anything about trains, Sim. That's why you're on to to have them carry on carrying on for a little bit longer than bringing in British Rail or something. Yes, there isn't actually a British Rail no, to bring in, but yes. I take your point. Uh, no, it would be it would be the easier solution because not least all the staff who work for Virgin Trains and there are best part of three thousand of those won't need new employment contracts in the shorter term. One imagines because they would have had to be transferred to another undertaking. Now they haven't got to be. That is one workload you haven't got to do. Virgin will be working busily to extend various contracts of well, actually about a hundred on my calculations contracts to do all sorts of things. But that can be done, one imagines, as long as they know that they're justified in doing it. Mm. The problem up till now is nobody knew who was running West Coast from the 9th of December. Very hard to do anything. But the negotiations, we are told, are underway, and the department has extended itself. Remarkable words for a department. Officials are said to be working flat out. I am delighted to hear it. <laughs> you were told I know they did. This is going to cost us, me... 
and you a lot of money. I read somewhere in the papers that the figure of £100 million being the, the, it's going to cost the taxpayer. Is that sound about right? You can get a few Scrabble um, blocks out at the moment with numbers on. If there are such things, there aren't. But if there were, you could throw them <laughs> up in the air and see what number comes down. Yeah. Because, to be honest, the department has said £40 million. Right. I think that's very low. I think that's just the bidding costs of the, the four bidders who were involved last time round. There are going to be a lot more costs involved in this. Uh, there's all the department time that was wasted. There are the legal costs. There are the, the costs of the accountants who came in to find out that they got it all wrong, and so on and so on and so on. Not least the cost of letting two more contracts, because let's just bear in mind what's being said. It's being said that Virgin will go on running it for 9 to 13 months. That is subject to a deal being done. Mm. Then there's going to be a contract of about two years, which will be open to anybody. Then there's going to be another contract, which will run through to about 2026. It's an incredibly messy solution. Indeed, Labour, I understand, are already calling it a total shambles. And I must say, I'm not making a political point here. I'm not surprised. Sim, stay there, because you, you, you can chip in, because you do know more about this. I mean, George Muir is on the line. He was Director General of the Association of Train Operating Companies. Uh, morning, George. Oh, yeah. It just, just, <laughs> just gets messier and messier, doesn't it? Uh, yes, I, I must say, the other chap on the line does seem to know an awful lot more about it, just uh, 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 about the current situation than I do. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I'm delighted that uh, that Virgin is going to carry on. It would be completely barking to have asked them to go and put in uh, the DFT-managed uh, sort of railway team. Um, so, you know, what they're doing is struggling to find a way around the procurement laws. How is this, George, do you think, going to affect the other franchises that are up for bid? It's uh, a bit hard to tell now. Uh, there are two other ones that have been suspended, and uh, one of these in particular, they must be absolutely hopping mad. Um, uh, I mean, the, these bidders must be hopping mad because, uh, you know, all their work's been, uh, been, been put on hold. Um, and I think if it is what's being described as a sort of nine months and a two-year, then a long one, um, that somewhat hints that they are thinking of quite a fundamental change to the way they do long-term franchising. George, uh, we've, had, mysterious. we've had several changes to the role of Transport Secretary uh, over the, the, the recent years. Do you think that that's part of the problem? There's been no continuity? No, I think it's more that the way the department's organised, I think, I think the Department for Transport and possibly other government departments find it very difficult to organise in a coherent way the management of an industry, which is what the Department of Transport... They're very good at doing policy, but I think they're actually... They're, they're a bit flaky when it comes to managing an industry. Uh, two or three, up to about three, four years ago, I think, there was one guy in the Department for Transport, who happened to call Mike Mitchell, or Dr. No, as he was often known, who ran the Department for Transport's rail business. And he, I think, uh, when he was there with one person in charge, I don't think all this mess would have happened. But now responsibility is spread all over the Department for Transport, and none of this surprises me. Why was he called Dr. No? Did he have a white cat? Uh, no, 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 he kept saying no. Oh, right, he was see, a right. famous manager who, uh, who was very, very good, but uh, he was quite tough. Uh, and no was his frequent response. <laughs> George, listen, thank you very much. George Muir, Director General of the Association of Train Operating Companies. One final thing, Sim. Is this, uh, uh, this going to affect passengers? Are we going to notice anything on our daily journeys? Assuming that these negotiations do reach agreement and Virgin gets this uh, temporary emergency stopgap nine to 13 months, 
Actually, no. If you stand on Milton Keynes Central on the 9th of December, the Pendolino will come in and it will still have, one assumes, the Virgin logo on the side. Tickets will be valid. The timetable will be the same. So the short answer is no. Ironically, in all this, in the short term, the least likely affected group are actually those of us who use the railway. However... What this will do will put back the plans that both Virgin and First Group had to improve West Coast over the next few years. There was talk of new trains. They were both going to have new trains, and they were going to introduce additional routes to places like Blackpool North and Shrewsbury. It's inevitable now that those more ambitious plans are going to be delayed by several years. In the longer term, passengers will suffer, but in the short term, no difference at all, I would think. Sim Harris, always a pleasure, and thank you for making it understand Understandable and, and putting it in language that even I can understand. Sim Harris, uh, manager, uh, managing editor of Rail News. And I did get very excited. I heard him on Radio 4 last week with Eddie Mayer. I was like, oh, that's Sim. I know him. I was, it was very exciting. Thank you very much. 08459 455 555. Time for this. Yes. I don't watch Strictly Come Dancing. I don't need to. Because even though it's one of the biggest shows in the country, I have a team of 10-year-old and under correspondents who watch it for me. This week, it's the turn of Hannah in Luton. Good morning, Hannah. Hi. How are you this morning? You right? Yeah. You ready for school? Yeah. What have you got today? Um, I think math. Boring. Yeah. And what else? Um, literacy. Boring. What else? Um, assembly. Oh, that could be good. And PE. Boring. So, a, a boring day. Do, do you want to go to school today or do you want to bunk off? Um, go to school. Okay, all right. I was going to give you a, a, a get-off-school-free pass, but if you, you've declined it, then you, you have to go to school. Hannah, did you watch Strictly Come Dancing this weekend? Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. What happened? Well, Johnny Ball um, got voted out, but he improved from last week. So he was better than last week, but he still got the boot. Yeah. Who was, who was, uh, did, did he deserve to go, Hannah? Well, kind of. Okay. Who would you like to have seen go? Um, hmm. Hmm. Richard and Erin. Now, so I, don't, I don't know, who, who are these people? Which one of those is the celebrity? Um. You don't know either, do you? I think Richard. Okay, and what does he do? That's what has he done that's made him famous? Is he a presenter. singer? He's a presenter, is he? Oh, Richard Arnold, the showbiz guy. I know exactly who you mean. I'm surprised he's on there. There's been a lot of reports in the paper. To, I have a lot of reports in the paper today, Hannah, that people think it's unfair that Denise Van Outen is on Strictly Come Dancing because she's had dancing training before. Do you? What do you think about that controversy? Um. Well. Well, I don't think, like, it's really fair. Yeah. So she shouldn't be allowed? Yeah. Mm. What were the dresses like? Were they pretty? Yeah. Who had the best dresses? Um, Danny. Yeah. Who's Danny? <laughs> I don't know who any of these people are, Hannah. <laughs> Is Danny a famous person? Well, she's um, not the celebrity. She's not the celebrity, she's the dancer. Was, was Flavia dancing? Because I like Flavia. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. Well. Yeah. She was dancing. Hannah, uh, and uh, are you watching any of the X Factor at all? Well, kind of. Yeah. But w- which do you prefer? Um. X Factor or, or Strictly? X Factor. 
Doctor. You know it makes sense. Hannah, lovely to talk to you. Try and enjoy uh, school today as much as you can. Okay. Oh, you sound a bit sad. Are you all right? No. Are you sad that, that this has ended? We can talk for longer if you want. I'm all right. All right, then. You sure? <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing bothering you at the moment? No. Okay. Well, it's lovely to talk to you. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That ended a bit sad there. I don't know what happened. Poor Hannah. I thought she did a cracking job. I've got to say, I'm so lucky having these team of correspondents. Hannah is just one of them. And she is fantastic. They are all fantastic. Hannah, you are an excellent sport. Thank you so much for that. We'll speak to you soon. Oh, look at the time. We're so late. I do apologise, Sophie. We were talking about Strictly. It's far more important. Thank you very much, Sophie. This is uh, Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's 8.16 uh, on Monday, the 15th of uh, August. Hello, October. Uh, These are your headlines. Uh, If I can just click open the thing that says the headlines. No, it's not working. There we go. BBC Three Counties Radio. That's all these rumours we hear about you. Every weekday afternoon from three... Roberto Peroni. The dog has been reunited with her owner three years after she went missing from her home in Milton Keynes. Candy, the Bishop Freese, was found over 100 miles away from the new city in Sussex. Dog warden Cathy Ed Morley. Roberto Peroni. She wrapped her paws round Carol's arm, which she hadn't done with any of us. She's settling in fantastically now. Just a great, great story. Roberto Peroni. Weekdays from three on BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, the eagle-eared amongst you may have noticed, I don't know, one or two little gaps, little technical faux pas there and jonathan, <laughs> jonathan may have may have noticed i think i think the, the casual listener might not have picked up on the, the few things that oh, happened there i know where this is going no it's all my fault no isn't it? it's it's not your fault i was going to say i was going to say that jvs is in the studio and he yeah. took the bullet for me he said i'm sorry about that oh. and, I, and i said no jonathan it wasn't your fault it was ollie who's the work experience lad who works here <laughs> i say he, the, the work experience who works here who worked here <laughs> What, you mean someone's going to lose their job Someone's going to lose their job for that, yeah. They're totally, they're going. They're gone. Oh, no. Look at you. It's the tough world of show business, baby. Being all demonstrative. (laughs) You're looking a bit rugged. Uh, What's going on? I've not had a shave, is what you mean. I'll tell you why. Because um, there is, like, a magazine coming in to take photos of me tomorrow. So I'll have a little shave tomorrow, so I look all smooth. Which which magazine is this? Um, Esquire. I don't know if you've heard of them. Yeah, I have. Why are they they taking photos of me? It's not Esquire. It's it's some local one that you were in as well. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, oh, can I do that, please? (laughs) He went, well, I suppose so. We're a little bit short for November's issue. Oh, really? Yeah. Don't sound surprised. I don't know if you know, uh, Jonathan, but I actually, uh, about 10, 12 years ago, I used to be very, very famous. on TV yeah, uh, quite a lot. 10 or 12 years <laughs> <laughs> My ago. career has slowly followed that. But there it's no, up again now I'm at BBC no, Three now, Counties. Now it's, it's going up. You're completely. Absolutely. Uh, what have you got this morning, sir? <laughs> Coming up on the big phone in this morning, is it time to accept that drugs aren't that bad? Uh, the UK Smith. the UK Drug Policy Commission says using illegal drugs is like gambling or eating junk food. And there uh, needs to be a wholesale review of the government's approach to drugs. The independent body has carried out a six-year study which also suggests it should no longer be treated as a criminal offence if people are caught in possession of small amounts of drugs. It says too much money is being wasted prosecuting thousands of people each year. Well, from nine this morning, I want to hear from you. Is it time to accept that drugs aren't that bad? This suggestion that uh, taking drugs is really no different to gambling or eating junk food. Mm. Do you think, yeah, that's right. Perhaps you take drugs uh, at the weekends and you think, well, actually, I don't think it's really that bad. Mm. Or perhaps you've seen your family pulled apart by drugs. Yes. 
08459 455 555. Is it time to accept that drugs aren't that bad? I want your view on the radio this morning on the big phone in at nine. And I read an email saying that you'll be sampling drugs live on air. Is that is that true or is that... N- You've seen this email. Well, I've, I'm about to write this email and send it oh, round. Right. Is, that, is that true or not? Is that s- I'd, I'd really rather not. Okay. <laughs> so good, good, good. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, do you mind? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. It will, no, I do. Very naughty. It will be an interesting discussion, Jonathan. Thanks very to much it. indeed. And going to shave tomorrow, or I'm uh, going to have a shave this evening. Yeah. Before I get up. Oh, I, I love the way you've planned your facial hair you around this it. magazine shoot. You know it, and I'm going to wear I'm going to wear a shirt and everything tomorrow, <laughs> yeah, and trousers. <laughs> See you later on. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you very much, Jonathan Werner Smith. It'd be well worth a listen at nine o'clock. Um, if you want to get in touch with him, you can phone him. I suggest you email now if you'd like to. Three uh, CR at bbc.co.uk. Uh, we've mentioned this a little bit throughout the show. Pop music has outplayed hymns by two to one at funerals over the last year, and over half of funeral homes have been asked to play live music during the service. Pipers, choirs, steel bands... Steel band? Oh, now you're talking. And rock groups are being hired in to play. But Sinatra's My Way still remains the nation's favourite. What song would you want played at your funeral? You can text in 81333, starting your text 3CR. Justin Dealey has been out in the three counties asking you... Now, madam, for yourself, it'll be reggae, maybe a bit of Bob Marley. Why reggae? Um, I just like the, the sound of it. It's just, you can't sit still to reggae. It's just a beat that makes you want to move. You move your feet and you move your tush and everything. <laughs> You're moving right now, aren't you? <laughs> I know, I can't well, help hey. it. <laughs> so you want people to be celebrating at your funeral, you want to be dancing in the aisles because you've had a fantastic life and you've lived life to the full, haven't you? Well, I don't know about that, but I would don't want people to be sad when I'm gone because, well, what's the point of being sad? I'm gone, I've, I've done what I wanted to do. And my life is over. You live your lives now. Get on with it. Have a good laugh. Have a rum and coke and neck it back. (laughs) Now, Linda, for you, it would be Michael Bublé, Mr Bubbles himself and home. Why that record? Um, Because I lived in Norfolk for a little while and I met someone in Luton. And when I used to travel down here, I used to always play it because I felt this would be my home and my new start of my new beginning, my new chapter. So that would be your funeral song. Ian was saying earlier on that at his funeral, a very morbid conversation, he wants people to be sobbing. Do you want people to be sobbing or do you want them to be happy at your funeral? Happy. Happy, cheerful, because I've had a good life, I've enjoyed my life. and It's a celebration. It is a celebration of what I've had, yeah, I agree. Uh, li- listen, when I when I die and I have a funeral, I want everybody blubbing. I don't want anybody. I don't want people laughing and this all. Oh, he was a great guy. I want people in tears. Uh, Vic says funeral music my way. Got to be uh, the Elvis version though. Uh, Phil says funeral song is living in a box. Okay. And Martin Luton says I would have uh, Nook and Cranny by Biosphere as my funeral song. If you've not heard it, check it out on YouTube. It's an ambient song from my favourite artist who lives in Norway. I, I have heard of uh, Biosphere. I have indeed heard, heard of Nook and Cranny. Uh, you can text in 81333. Start your text 3CR. Now, uh, you need to do more research into your new neighbours before dishing out money on a house. One of Hertfordshire's leading property experts told me earlier on that you could end up living next door to the neighbours from hell unless you do a bit of research beforehand. Like paying for spies to monitor them for a week, knocking on their door and asking questions, and a Assessing their home with a fine-tooth comb. Well, by the time uh, a problem reaches my next guest, it's all too late, as John Gunner is a mediator from St Albans. Good morning, John. Good morning. I bet you get to hear some fascinating stories, don't you? I do, I do. Everything from um, the usual stuff with parking, high hedges, um, noise, wild parties. Uh, The weirdest one, I think, was snakes in a dustbin. 
uh, you, you've rendered me speechless, which doesn't happen very often. Snakes in a dustbin? Yes. Sta- snakes. Live snakes? No, they were dead. They were dead. Well, okay. That's Does not, that make it okay? That, that's all right, then. <laughs> uh, the thing is, I uh, once had, uh, could have got into a dispute with a neighbour over fences and hedges, and I thought, life is too short. I will let them have that extra two inches in the garden. It's not worth it. Do sometimes people get riled up, do you think, about things that maybe they should just let go? It's very strange. There's no owner's man- manual, is there, to mm. um, life. Uh, but part of the important thing is to uh, be aware of what riles you, because I might love um, having a rock star living next door, mm. um, but you might hate it. It completely depends on what pushes our buttons. Mm. At what stage do people come to you for help? I'm assuming things have got quite bad by the time they come and see you. They can do. Um, I've got to the point now in two occasions where there have been death threats involved. Really? It could escalate that far? Oh, yeah. And in fact, there has been a case, not one I dealt with, but somebody got shot over a high hedge. (laughs) <laughs> I'm laughing out of shock. That's incredible. That, that someone, that, that, uh, uh, someone went round and said, I've had enough of this. Bang. Yeah. Wow, so it's important to sort well, these things you deal, out. you deal with people all the time. You hear all sorts of yes, stories. Right. You know what people are like and you're can right. be like. Uh, and, and I was saying to you off-air that I've been very lucky. My neighbours at the moment are, are, are wonderful. We have an opera singer. It's so middle class. We have an opera singer on one side, a, a wonderful family on the other. Uh, but I'm going to be moving soon. I, I'm getting slightly anxious about this. How does it work f- from your point of view? You're sat in a room with both parties, or do you do them one at a time? What's the, the setup? With community mediation, which is what we're talking about with mm. neighbours, there will be a pair of us go in there, usually volunteers, but sometimes um, people who work with the local authorities, sometimes independent professional mediators like myself. Mm. Two of us will go in, uh, we're called in, people are made aware, maybe from CAB, the council, or whatever it is, uh, that there is this thing called mediation. Mm. You don't have to go to court, um, you don't have to shoot people. Mm. Um, there is some help out there. If you can't deal with it yourself, it gets to that stage. But the mediation the involves compromise, doesn't it? Pe- people will have to compromise. Are they ready to compromise? Actually, mediation is more about what it takes to get on with your life. Right. Uh, and sometimes you might not even know because you, you lose it. Mm. We do. We get to the point where our instincts take over. We've complete, we're <clears throat> unable to be rational about anything uh, and we can't sort it ourselves. At that point, you need a neutral third party. Some people traditionally have gone to the vicar, the imam, you know, the doctor, anybody, mm. um, uh, granddad. Um, my doctor elder. would hate it if I went around and said, I've got, I'm having trouble with my neighbours, can you sort <laughs> it out? Very quickly, we're running out of time. I, I find this fascinating. I'll talk to you all morning. If someone has got a, the early stages of a problem, mm. what would your advice be to them? The earliest the possible uh, earliest the best go and find out do a little google go to ccab find a mediator somebody who can help if you can't do it yourself and good luck with your ma- neighbors by the way but remember they're not going to be there forever <laughs> john uh, listen i'm sorry it's so short i could talk to you away. thank you so much for coming in uh, john gunner is a mediator from st albans uh, do let us know about your uh, your neighbors 08459 455 555 and also if you've got good neighbors let's you know let's let's mention the good ones there are some out there it's time to get the latest news and sport and Catherine, take your time as i'm about to eat a banana that's your latest news and sports hopefully ian's finished his banana more from me in half an hour what a lovely banana Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Perfect Lee timing, Catherine, on thank BBC you. BBC Three Counties Radio. It was the perfect length of news 
to eat a lovely banana. Uh, this is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. Coming up in the last half an hour of the show before Jonathan Vernon Smith, I'll have the latest news on the allegations surrounding Jimmy Savile. And should the concrete cows in Milton Keynes be moved? You can get in touch by email, 3cr at bbc.co.uk. You can text 81333, starting your text 3CR, or you can give me a call, 08459 455555. Further allegations of Jimmy Savile's inappropriate behaviour continue to emerge. Yesterday, a former former controller of Radio 1, Derek Chinnery, revealed he'd questioned Jimmy Savile about allegations over his private life in the 1970s. That's all this, these rumours we hear about you, Jimmy. And he said, that's all nonsense. It's easy now to say, how could you just believe him just like that? But there was no reason to disbelieve him. He was the sort of man that attracted rumours, after all. Uh, yeah, because paedophiles always tell the truth on their question, don't they? <laughs> they always go, yeah, no, no, you, you've got me there. Uh, on Friday evening, the BBC's Director-General, George Entwistle, announced there would be two independent inquiries relating to Jimmy Savile. Well, Steve Hewlett is a media commentator from Hertfordshire, and he's on the line now. Good morning, Steve. Hello. What's your assessment of how the BBC is dealing with this crisis? Well, they've now done the right thing. Uh, they've set up two inquiries, one to look at what happened 40 years ago, uh, who knew what and so on, the culture of the organisation, what what sustained or allowed Savile to, to get away with what he did, uh, whether warnings were ignored, etc., uh, etc. Et and also, I, I'm sure, well, I, we know, it will also go and look at uh, other allegations, people from people like Liz Kershaw and others, about being groped and uh, touched inappropriately by male star. So I think the, the culture of the organisation will get a pretty thorough going over and that will not be easy. Mm. In some respects slightly harder is the other inquiry into why the Newsnight programme last November was dropped. The reason being that in, in uh, Savile dies in October. Uh, in November the BBC announces a Christmas schedule with lots of tribute programmes to Jimmy Savile and then up pops the pesky Newsnight with evidence on the face of it that um, Savile was a serial paedophile and it's the Newsnight programme that gets dropped. The BBC have maintained all along that was for perfectly proper editorial reasons, and I've no reason to doubt that. But the answers that they've given, the things, sorry, the things that they have said on almost every front, have been have the appearance of being incomplete. So even just a couple of weeks ago, on the 30th of um, September, just before the ITV programme went out, the BBC put out a statement saying that while they condemned any behaviour of the type alleged in the strongest terms, in the absence of evidence of any kind found at the BBC that corroborates the allegations that have been made, it is simply not possible for the corporation to take any further action. Well, in the space of ten days, mm. uh, they've turned 180 degrees and are now mounting a full inquiry of their own. And you may say about time too, why didn't they grasp the nettle previously, given that they must have had some idea, some idea, not necessarily of the scale of what was going to happen, but that it was going to be serious? Well, these are questions that the inquiry will have to answer. How much damage has this done to the BBC? Well, in terms of what happened 40 years ago, I, look, it's damaging, but the BBC doesn't stand alone. I mean, you've now got Broadmoor, you know, you've got prisons, hospitals, uh, youth organisations, charities, all sorts of things that Savile was involved in, he used as cover for his activities. Now, in one sense, you, you can't really blame them because they're not the paedophile he is. Were they vigilant enough? Almost obviously not. Were, were any organisations vigilant enough back in the late 60s and early 70s? Well, mm. in many cases, the answer to that must be no. So it's not good for the BBC, but they are at least not standing alone in that regard. When it comes to the way that they've handled this story, as in, I say, I think it, it, in some respects it's a bit more media anorak maybe, but that may, prove, that may prove more telling. I mean, I don't doubt that the BBC have, in fact... I'm, I've no reason to think the BBC have behaved, rather anything other than properly, mm. but the way they've handled it 
leaves all sorts of questions, I'm sure in many licensed pairs' minds, about what on earth they're going on. Steve, I think you're right there. I think that the way they've handled it is pretty appalling. But it does annoy me slightly, these accusations of of a a culture at the BBC that allowed someone to abuse children. Because it it, it wasn't a culture at the BBC that allowed it, was it? It was just, it was Jimmy Savile and it was some people around him. The BBC wasn't a home for paedophiles. Well, no, that's that's true. But look, there were, the, the culture in lots of workplaces back in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, has there's clearly been a degree of cultural cover for this, and it may have been worse at the BBC because look, it's a broadcasting organisation. Lots of the men involved are bit, are powerful figures, etc., etc., etc. We know that pa- powerful that if once abusers, if abusers obtain. Uh, get hold of positions of power and influence mm. they'll use them to exercise their predilections and you can see that there was an o- there was a, a much more sexualized culture mm. abreast if you forgive the unintentional pun at, at the bbc and elsewhere in the late 60s early 70s there was the pill there was an awful lot of consensual sex going on rather more than had gone on previously people did it because they could then you've got the aspects of elements of what would now count as certainly as sexual harassment possibly abuse maybe even criminal actions mm. which which went un unremarked you know if women complained about being touched by men they were asked whether they just lacked a sense of humor or were they lesbians or whatever mm. but and at the other end you've got what Savile was up to now there's no there's no obvious connection between them except that for a single man like Jimmy Savile out and about Jack the lad there was plainly a degree of cultural cover at the time because he was, he was in inverted commas, allowed to behave in... No-one knew he was abusing children, I don't suppose, or if they did, we'll find out. But he was allowed to behave in these ways because, at some level, m- a lot of the others were too. Steve Hewlett, thank you very much. Media commentator from Hertfordshire. And I, I do find this whole story fascinating, and I totally take uh, some of Steve's points there, and I think the BBC have handled this initially pretty badly. They're, they're kind of getting up to speed now. They handled it pretty badly at the start, and they should have come out straight away and said, right, we're going to open our books, open our doors, um, and we're going to investigate this, and the police are going to investigate this, and this is what we're going to do. And they've kind of got there eventually. But the, 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 to, to, to say, as a lot of the papers are saying, that there was a culture that allowed this to happen at the BBC, I, I don't know if I agree with that, really. That, that's implying that there are people high up at the BBC in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that knew that Jimmy Savile was a paedophile. And... I don't think necessarily there was. I don't think there was a culture that went, oh, hey, it's only Savile. He, he can have sex with 13-year-old girls. It doesn't matter. You know, as long as we keep it hush-hush. I don't think that was the case. I could be proven completely, completely wrong. Uh, and um, as macabre as this story is, it's certainly uh, fascinating to watch. Uh, 08459 is the telephone number. If you want to find out more about the show and about the radio station, you can go to Facebook. And uh, facebook.com forward slash bbc3cr, I think it is. Look for BBC Three Counties Radio on the Facebook page. Uh, And some of you have been posting your comments uh, about the Milton Keynes cows. Turns out they're not even the original ones. They're fakes. They've been vandalised and they may be moved. Um, Helen says the cows should stay where they are. They are a landmark. Dawn says they are the worst cases of vandalism which are left for years untouched. This is extremely well done. Uh, There are worse cases, sorry. And should be respected for the talent used. If it was Banksy, they wouldn't think of changing it. Banksy would have done a better job. Aidan says they should be moved to the moon. And Samantha, they should not be moved. That is their home. Do you know, I was kind of concerned that you might think that these cows made Milton Keynes a bit of a laughing stock. But it turns out you, you, most of you seem to have an affection for the cows. Now, at the weekend, 
and I missed this, I didn't see it yesterday, my wife was watching it, I must be the only person who didn't, Austrian skydiver Felix Baumgartner jumped into the record books this weekend, travelling faster than the speed of sound. He jumped literally from the edge of space from a specially designed helium balloon 24 miles above New Mexico. He broke the record for the highest ever free fall and has become the first skydiver to go faster than the speed of sound, reaching 833.9 miles per hour. Steve Baker is uh, both an MP for Wickham and a skydiver, Steve! Well, I am, yes, that's right, but not a skydiver like Felix. He's right at the top of the game. Well, the Steve, even you, you're bonkers for doing it. Why on earth would you want to jump out of an aeroplane, you fool? Because <laughs> it's great fun. You know, there's nothing quite like being in free fall. And uh, to be uh, oh. being free fall for that long for Felix must have been absolutely astonishing as an experience. I've got to listen. We'll talk about Felix in a second because I, I just think anybody that jumps from an aeroplane is, is bonkers. What, 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 are you not terrified that the parachute won't work and something will go wrong? When you first do a few skydives, obviously you're terrified, and yeah. if the skydive doesn't go very well, and you don't feel in control of yourself. Then there's probably nothing more frightening. But you just have to get a grip, and that's one of the big challenges of the sport is actually yeah. wanting to jump. And once you've decided you really want to do it, then it's an amazing feeling. How do you fling yourself out of that open door? You just have to decide take <laughs> yourself by the scruff of the neck oh, and just God. go for it but um i mean my favorite kind of exit is a sort of wildly unstable rolling dive from the aircraft oh, um, but uh, some of the more difficult ones are when you go out with the formation and there's sort of four or even eight of you do you do that the formation well you can't go out tumbling with a formation no. with a formation you should go out stable and that's why it's harder because you have to really pause and consider it and actually when I watched Felix, you could see that he really paused, perhaps a li- little longer than the uh, ground controllers expected. Did you watch? Did you watch it last I night? I did watch it live. Yeah. What, and what did you make of it? Well, I mean, it's astonishing. I, yeah. mean, I didn't watch the entire ascent live. I kept that one in the background. But the the, the entire endeavour is just astonishing. To go supersonic uh, in free fall, to jump for 128,000 feet. I mean, it really is an amazing achievement. Um, as, and, and it's the humility with which. Felix Baumgartner did it. He talked about when you're being on, when you're on the top of the of the world, it's not about records, mm. it's not about uh, scientific data, it's about ca- coming home. And I think what capped it for me was that he deployed his parachute by six thousand feet. Mm. Now he normally we don't deploy till about three thousand. So I think Felix Baumgartner. It's only what I guess, but I guess he deliberately pulled his parachute early to make sure that Joe Kittinger remains the record holder. He was the guy the that did it in the 60s or something, wasn't he? That's right, yeah. yeah. And I just was reading earlier that when he jumped and, and, get, uh, and set his record, it was only his 33rd skydive. Wow. So, yeah, whereas Felix has done 2,500, Joe Kittinger uh, had only done 33. So these are in- both things are you know, incredible human achievements. Steve, did, were you watching it going, oh, I fancy a bit of that? Well, I, I, to be honest, I can't imagine a skydiver watching it and not fancying. Really? To be honest. Well, yeah, why, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's only distance. <laughs> it's only distance. You're only hurtling towards the earth. No, is, look, is there a lot... Go on, sorry. Got to, you have got to take it seriously. I mean, it, it, it was a five-year um, yeah. plan. It was millions of dollars. It only costs £20 now for me to go skydiving. Right. It costs millions of dollars for Felix to do that jump. So, But, you know, I think if uh, the Labour voters of Wickham want to have a whip round, I'll quite happily do it for them. Well, listen, I'm sure you can divert some funds from, like, a hospital or a library or something. Steve, to justify, can't you? 
<laughs> you can work some magic. Not at millions of dollars. No, you're yeah. not. Listen, yeah. thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on. I think you're you're an idiot for doing it, but I respect you for doing it. And the world needs more people jumping out of airplanes. I think. All right. Well, thank you. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, no, take it as the compliment it was meant. It was meant to be. Steve Baker. Thank you, uh, MP for Wickham and a skydive. I do think anyone that jumps out of an airplane, does a bungee jump, even goes up in a hot air balloon, is mental. Why on earth would you want to be so far away from the ground? Awful thing to do. But, uh, but you know, I do, I, I have a, a begrudging respect for these, these daredevils, these, these people that do these kind of stunts, that do, you know, th- th- we don't have the evil Knievels anymore. And people like, like Steve Baker jumping out of airplanes on a smaller scale and Felix Baumgartner jumping from the moon, as well, he pretty much did. Wonderful. Uh, and don't forget, Jonathan Vernon Smith will be on at nine o'clock and he's talking drugs uh, this morning. So um, I'm sure you've got some views on that. We've mentioned this story a few times and uh, we are following it closely as uh, it, it progresses. A protest against plans for a strip club in Ampthill is taking place tonight. MP for Mid-Bedfordshire, Nadine Dorries, is warning that the protest is a bad idea. She says it's just creating publicity for the owner. Well, Justin Dealey is with Ruth, who's been gathering signatures for the petition that will be presented at the Town Hall. Justin? Yes, thank you, Ian. I'm in Amstel again this morning, just around the corner from this uh, lap dancing club, which is on Church Street here in the town. The Central Bedfordshire Council, they granted Lord John Shaler's application for a sexual entertainment licence. That was back in July. Since then, well, the signatures have been going up and up and up. Uh, Welcome to the programme. The lap dancing club has caused a lot of concern here. First of all, Nadine Dorry's comments. um, You're not happy with those. You don't think she's got a point at all, do you? No, I don't, because this isn't about, um, you know, who it is or whatever. This is actually, I believe, a meeting we're getting together to show the council. Um, They've let us down, and Nadine Dorry basically heads that council because she's our local MP. So you think that she should be with you, certainly listening to your concerns, over 2,000 signatures, and she's saying, well, all you're doing is giving him free publicity. You think that's wrong. She should be with you trying to do something. Yes, she should be. She should be actually there, um, at least fighting our cause. If it turns out in the end we've got nothing to fight for, then so be it. But she hasn't shown that she's with us on anything. So why do you think she's not interested then? Um, I don't know. It makes me wonder whether where the um, MPs are having a shake-up and whether the, you know, bit of the area is going to be gone and whether she's soon got a job. I don't know. Mm. I really don't know. So this petition is being handed in this evening after six o'clock. Where's that going to be handed in and uh, what's going to be happening there? There's going to be a meeting on Market Square um, and I believe it will be a very large meeting. It's going to be um, quiet. We don't want a lot of you know, people coming up there shouting and bellowing about. It's to let the council know, as we say, that us, the people of Amptill, do not want this, but they haven't listened. Um, we thought we lived in a democracy. We thought that um, you know, we voted our councils in. Our town councillors, most of them are actually with us. Um, and you know, hopefully, on the market square, that petition of reaching two and a half thousand now will be handed over to the council. Ian mentioned in the introduction we, we have featured this story many, many times before. If nobody has heard about this before, just try and sum it up for us. Uh, why are you so angry about this lap dancing club happening here in Amstel? 
the position is the main thing it's not so much what it is it is where it is it is the main building right on the market square it's right opposite um, all the local shops but mainly there's a little girls dance well children's dancing school within about 50 yards of this down an alley um, and that doesn't actually I believe finish until up to nine o'clock some nights you get young girls coming out of there and I don't think that having this sort of establishment opposite and also right on the entrance to Waitrose car park where all of us shop mm. very often in the evenings is the appropriate place if, if that had put it on a lorry park outside we wouldn't have had anything to say okay uh, just lastly we're hearing rumors of opening days being maybe october the 29th but um the airwaves are yours right now i'm sure that nadine dorries is listening to this right now if not she can certainly listen again on the iplayer we, we will certainly let her know this conversation is taking place what is your message to Nadine Dorries this morning? Um, come on and join us, Nadine. Show that you're actually our MP and you're happy to actually try and help us achieve what Amptill wants, what any area wants, the best for their town. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Ian, just to give you some figures here, I'm talking about Nadine Dorries there, the MP for Mid-Bedfordshire. Now, the population of Amptill, this lovely market town here, mm. uh, the population is 7,000 people. Yeah. And we're talking here about 2,500 people who have signed this petition. That, I think, shows you the passion. Uh, people don't want it to go ahead. Uh, the petition will be handed in this evening at 6.30. And as I mentioned there, we're hearing rumours of an opening date of October the 29th, which of course is just around the corner but these people are still hopeful uh, they can stop it from opening uh, justin you may want to pass this on to ruth we, we did try and get nadine dorries on the show uh, today and she said that she wasn't available and she doesn't get involved in planning decisions let's get uh, some reaction to that uh, apparently nadine dorries says that she doesn't get involved in planning decisions very briefly your reaction to that um, is that weak? I, I re- yeah, very weak. Yeah, I'm not happy with that explanation at all. You it know, does sound a... The RMP, whether she's with us or against us, there should be some sort of thing said. She should at least come and tell us what or, you know, why we are, should, are doing what we're doing is wrong. If it's wrong, and it's not wrong. And this isn't actually about even planning in the end of the day. It's about principles. You know, it's, it's our opinions. It's what the people want. And why do the people vote for MPs, for councillors, to do what the people want. There you go, Ian. Uh, Justin, listen, thank you very much. We shall follow that story uh, closely as it progresses, and we'll certainly keep an eye on that. Um, and, um, yeah, it does seem a little bit of a cop-out to say they don't get involved in planning decisions. She's an MP. Oh, surely she... Listen, I'm not saying I'm for or against this, this uh, club whatsoever. I don't know. I don't know the area particularly well. I know it, but I don't know it particularly well, and I don't live there. Part of me thinks, hey, this guy's trying to start a business, best of luck to him, but I don't have to live next door to it, so I can understand why people would be upset. But you would think that the MP would at least listen to the, uh, the complaints of the constituents, wouldn't you? You would think so. Um, oh, wait, four, five, nine, four, double, five, five, double, five. We're talking about funerals as well after the, one of these surveys that always seems to come out every few months in the newspapers. Uh, the Frank Sinatra's My Way is the, the, the favourite... Uh, music to be played at funerals. Anne is in St Albans. Good morning, Anne. Hello, Ian. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I believe your son died in January. He did, that's right. I'm really sorry to hear that. Thank you. What, uh, what was played at the funeral and who decided what was going to be played? Well, my son had only been married 16 months. So we included his wife and talked to his wife because she obviously had to have some say. Mm. Now, my son was Star Wars mad. 
and um, we found out that the Star Wars theme was called A New Hope. Mm. So my son's funeral was held in the cathedral, and they played the Star Wars theme, A New Hope, as he was carried out to the hearse at the end, and got a huge round of applause. Round of applause? Yeah. Fantastic. And then when my husband, I didn't go to the crematorium, but my husband did, mm. um, and they played the Muppet theme at the, at the crematorium because from being a little boy he collected the Muppets and was Muppet mad as well. How did you feel about that being played? Because there are some people who might say what's well, a little bit distasteful. No, because it was what, what he would have chosen. Yeah. We knew that that's what he would have chosen and it helped us knowing that that's what he would have liked. And everybody we've talked to since then thinks it's wonderful. And, and, and if I'm going to ask you a question, if I'm asking too much, then, then tell me yeah, to mind my business. Can, can I ask, what, how, how, he's obviously quite young when he passed. How, why did he pass so young? He had cancer. He was diagnosed last October and right. he died in January. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was a great shock. Did you talk to him about arrangements? No, we didn't have time. You didn't have time. As far as we knew, he was in hospital having to have radiotherapy. Yeah. Um... He'd been in for a few days. They couldn't do the radiotherapy. He was in too much pain. Mm. Um, we were going to see him on the Friday evening. Um, we got a phone call in the afternoon to say that he wasn't going to come out of hospital. Oh, dear. Um, we got there on the Friday evening. We managed to have a conversation with him, but obviously thinking that we still had a few weeks, if anything. Mm. Um, arranged to go back on the Saturday to see him. Um, my daughter-in-law was staying with him. And uh, we got a phone call on the Saturday morning to say, can you get here as quick as you can? We got there at um, about one o'clock, and he died at ten past six. Oh, Anne, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about it. I really appreciate it. And again, you know, we talked, we talked in the room when he was there, whether he could hear us or not, we don't know. Oh, I'm sure he could. But, um, you know, we hadn't had a chance to talk about anything like that. My daughter knows... She's so young as well. Yeah. And we found out on the day of my son's funeral, the day before my son's funeral, that her father has now got cancer. Oh, dear. What, what a run of oh. bad luck. And yeah, listen, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that story with us. Thank you okay. very much. Lots of Thank love. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, dear. It does this make, just make you think, doesn't it, actually, that um, whatever's going on, and we're, we're kind of doing all right, aren't we? Peter's in Warmer Green. Peter? Hello, good morning. Good morning, sir. What have you got for us? Well, uh, what I was going to say, basically, when you, when you lose someone, yeah. as I did, and you've done it all yourself prior to that, literally, you do go in tremendous overload because there is so much to do. I bet there is. And, and really and truly, there, there don't seem to be any sort of balance in what goes on. I mean, I diagnosed really what you died of, in a sense. Not practically, but in a sense, really, because uh, uh, you, you, but you're in so much overload. I was starting to get, for the first time in my life, slightly forgetful because I, I was doing so much and I had to back away from things. Well, this is one of the things, Peter. We're probably all going to have to sort out a funeral at some point. I wouldn't have a clue what to do. What music did you play at the funeral? Well, I, I had one of... Uh, um, i trying to think now. I had one of... 
The guy who plays late at night. We, my wife used to love it in the car. The guy who plays late yeah, at the, night? Yeah, the one we've always got on the BBC. Jules be- Holland. Pardon? Jules Holland? Jules Holland. There we go, there we one go. Of his, one of his uh, uh, tunes, and my wife used to love it being played in the car. Fantastic. It was more right to the bar type stuff, you know, the yeah. old... Boogie, boogie, a little bit of boogie-woogie. Type of music. Peter, and listen, I've got, I've got to move on. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. A lot of great stories this morning. Thank you for that. Jules Holland, we got there in the end. There we go. I have to be honest, I, I wouldn't have got to Jules Holland without Jonathan Vernon-Smith just whispering in my ear from the other studio. Jules Holland! Uh, thank you for all of your calls. I'm back tomorrow at 6 o'clock. Do stick around. Jonathan's up next. Ta-ta. Getting beds, hearts and bugs talking. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. Thank you, Ian.